working within that handbook, it's not if your child's having big emotions or they're experiencing depression, what do you do? There's, there's no handbook to guide you in that. So it takes people in schools, it takes people in the community, it takes parents and caregivers, it takes students to figure out how we can better care for each other. And if we're worried about someone, what do you do, mm -hmm. right? You might not be the person who can magically fix what's going on, but you sure can help find what might help that person who's in crisis or who might need support. Is there a website um, or somewhere that folks can go to get more resources on, on the topic today? Yeah, the state has an Office of Suicide Prevention. They have tons of handouts and resources. Um, they give you information on text lines, but the Office of Suicide Prevention for the state is a mm -hmm. great website if you're looking for more information. Uh, the Colorado Crisis Walk-In Centers is a great resource mm -hmm. because you can walk in with a child, access a clinician who then is gonna help identify if your child needs more support, they need counseling, if they just need someone to check in with them at school, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, and kind of triage, what does that child need? And that's a free resource. So you can go onto their website. I believe they have five locations around the Denver Metro. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, they're free. You can go in and do that. So you can learn information that way. And then of course, I'm gonna bring it back to schools. Right? You can reach out to your school mental health provider, ask for a fact sheet, a tip sheet, ask about those trainings so that you too can grow your skills as a parent. Ask about the programming we do with students because right now we do programming in fifth grade, sixth grade, ninth grade, and 12th grade. Uh, and we use different programming for those different grades really to help make sure that our kids have adapted and, and developed the coping skills that they need to be healthy and they know what to do if they're not feeling great. Thank you for sharing those resources. Before we go, I want to share with everyone listening in and watching uh, some facts around suicide. Overall, suicide is the eighth leading cause of death in Colorado. Eight times as many people died by suicide. The Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. Would you be kind enough to call the roll? Yes. Thank you. Jack Blumenthal? Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Charles Scheibe? Here. Frank Rowe? Here. Tim O'Brien? Here. Uh, thank you very much. Next item is approval of the September meeting minutes. Is there a motion to approve? So moved. Second. second. All right. Thank you very much. Any discussion? Any corrections? All in favor, say aye. 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 Any opposed? All right, the minutes are approved. Uh, next item is a presentation of the auditor's 2024 audit plan. You all have a copy of that. I think it was also transmitted to you electronically. Um, this is required by charter that the audit, you know, put forth an audit plan by the third Monday in October every year. And this is the 2024 version. And I'm gonna ask Valerie and Dawn to kind of walk through some of the high points. Um, well, actually, they're all high points, but uh, <laughs> of the audits that we'll be conducting or plan to be conducting in 2024. So, 
Good morning. I'm Valerie Walling, Deputy Auditor, and um, you can view the audit plan on our website, uh, Denver Auditor. Um, and Don Weissman will introduce herself and start the presentation. All right. Well, thank you, Valerie. Good morning, Auditor, Audit Committee members and guests. Um, I'm Don Weisman. I'm the Audit Services um, Director. So we'll just jump right into the plan. So um, the Audit Services function of the Auditor's Office is governed by City Charter to use generally accepted government auditing standards to conduct our work. These standards and the auditor's independence established the foundation of ethical, objective, quality evidence-based work. Each audit's findings are accompanied by recommendations that provide the city concrete guidance in addressing the risks that we identified. More information about the elements of the auditor's audit function can be found on page 12 of the plan. Now, the audit services teams are performing multiple audits in different areas of the city at all times. The overall object scope of audits include performance of city services, stated goals and objectives and requirements, financial controls and operations, information technology controls and cybersecurity defenses, and contract uh, and grant compliance. And, and follow-up audits assess the status and quality of those, of those recommendations and their implementation made in the initial audit. Implementation rates are indicators of how well the city addresses the risks that we identified. Now page eight on the audit plan describes our audit analytics and continuous auditing team's work. These experts train and support our audit teams in analytical methods for specific audits and then also run analysis on large data sets from city systems to identify risks needing further assessment. I will hand it over to Valerie to discuss some more of the risk-based um, information. Uh, as described on pages 10 and 11 of the audit plan, our continued process of tracking city risks and collecting new risk information includes lingering risks that remain from past internal and external audits. And our follow-up audits identify whether our recommendations from original audits were implemented. If the risk was not fully addressed, we continue to track it as part of our overall risk assessment. The annual financial audits of the city by external audit firms also help identify critical financial or technology risks that our office can include in our audit work. Examples of these risks in the 2024 plan include airport concession contracts oversight, um, other contract monitoring of construction contractors and city vendors. New and emerging risks are identified from our ongoing research of national and local auditing publications and trends and uh, reviewing other government's audit reports, collecting community input and concerns, and monitoring effects of significant changes in the city. The city programs and also new city programs and ordinances. Examples listed here include the Climate Protection Fund that voters approved in November 2020, the Department of Public Safety employment practices such as secondary employment concerns heard from the public, and use of overtime that may often be driven by short staffing issues. Another example of a newer risk is the software implementation of the airport's revenue system prop works. And then we have ongoing risks 
which are citywide risks that we have identified uh, recurring in multiple areas of the city through audits and continuous audit analytics of city data, and or we should revisit them after a period of time in a changing environment. We initiate these audits um, of recurring topics and other agencies and programs to help the city continue to address the risk through citywide approaches. As an example, the scripts that the audit analytics team regularly run on city transactions and databases test high-risk areas like appropriate use of purchase cards and proper authorization of purchase orders. Audits on the 2024 audit plan that represent ongoing risks include outdated technology infrastructure that has been found in certain areas of the city and should be further explored in other areas, and information technology risk management as a review of the maturity levels of the city's approaches. The ever-changing nature of IT risks and cybersecurity risks are, um, really fall into all of these categories of types of risk, and we will continue to look at them regularly. Um, so just to give you some highlights of our 2024 audits that we'll be working on, as Valerie mentioned, we'll be looking at the Department of Public Safety and their employment practices, as well as information technologies risk management. Um, we'll also be looking at the city's shelter system to see how well they are providing those services for people experiencing homelessness. It's, you know, it's a pretty timely topic as well. Um, we will also be uh, reviewing the oversight of Caring for Denver Foundation and how uh, the city certifies and renews businesses for people owned uh, for businesses owned by people with color, women, and other disadvantaged populations, as well as looking at um, how well the city's self-insured drug plan is operating, looking at Denver 311, and uh, so much more. Uh, if you uh, had a chance to look at the plan, um, I, I would suggest that you look at the rest of those. And um, in 2024, it also includes some of our carryover audits that we're working on right now, so that some of this will include um, the security of the city voting systems, uh, professional services contract management, paramedic response times, and city vehicle management. We will also follow up on prior year audits and evaluate the implementation of those recommendations, as Valerie explained um, moments ago, really just to see what risks remain and what we may need to carry forward in the following plans um, that we will create. So if you look um, at our audit coverage throughout the city, we have pretty broad audit coverage. Um, we'll be covering areas such as the clerk and recorder's office, technology services, the Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency. That's a mouthful. Um, and, uh, the Department of Finance, and as well as public health and environment. So it's a broad range of areas that we'll be auditing in 2024. Um, so when you look at the plan, you can see the breadth of those audit objectives that we'll be looking at as you look at each one of those individually. So that concludes our presentation on the audit plan. So we'll open the floor for any questions or comments. Any questions? Um, I would only, yeah, go ahead, please. A um, couple comments in it. First of all, I love the artwork. The watercolors <laughs> are beautiful. So I just would like to compliment you on that. Um, second of all, I l love the idea that you're looking at organizational culture because I think that um, permeates everything else. So I think that's great that you're looking at that. And then one specific question I have, I, uh, being on audit committee, I love it when we're told that a certain department has asked to be audited. You know, that I, I, I don't know, I find that very refreshing. And I'm just curious if there are any audits that were directed by 
the department? Well, I would welcome the department that's here this morning. <laughs> um, I think we've had a wonderful working relationship with our technology services. Um, other than technology services, I'm trying to think. Clerk is and any? recorder. Oh, the clerk and recorder, okay. for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I just think that says something. So. Thank you. Um, the one thing I'd like to add is this is, is a plan, and circumstances will change, and some audits will drop off, and new audits could, could come on, um, but just recognize that it is a plan. Frank? Uh, I'm, I'm relatively new to the committee, um, but there's four pages of this. You guys are doing a, a lot of work, so that's terrific. And just to follow up on Leslie's, um, what I really like is um, the number of community audit ideas that are coming. And um, asked Valerie before the meeting, is that up from last year? And she said, yeah. So this is a really good thing to not only have the departments uh, asking, but also the community voicing their opinion. So I, I think that's great. Yeah, thank you um, for the comment. You know, we have made a priority with my communications division uh, to reach out to the community. And we go to neighborhood organization meetings. Uh, we attend a lot of functions, just sort of waving the flag, here's what the auditor's office does, uh, here's how you can provide input, uh, and hopefully somebody watching on Channel 8 right now will think that they could send an email to auditor at denvergov.org and maybe we'll do an audit based on that email, you never know. But other questions, comments? All right, thank you, Dawn and Valerie. Our next item is a follow-up report on information technology disaster recovery. Nick? Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Nick Jamaraglu. I'm the Acting Information Systems Audit Manager here in the Auditor's Office. Uh, the uh, other um, associate that I worked with this on the follow-up was Dave Hancock. He was unable to be here today. So uh, just a shout out to Dave, thanks for all your help. Um, this uh, audit was released, uh, original audit was released in May 2021. Uh, Follow-up was started earlier this year. And I uh, just wanted to take a moment to thank Technology Services for all your support and assistance during the follow-up. I really appreciate it and I'll hand it over to you to introduce yourselves. Thank you, good morning Auditor O'Brien, Audit Committee and members of the audit team. My name is Brian Jones. Operations Director and Disaster Recovery is uh, part of my uh, program. Uh, I'll leave it to my colleagues to introduce themselves. Good morning. My name is Daniel Kolb. I'm the Disaster Recovery Manager for Technology Services. James Stone. I'm the Principal IT Architect for the City and County of Denver. I'm sorry. Could you repeat that again? I'm uh, James Stone. I'm the Principal Technology Architect for the City. It helps to speak at the microphone. Just. Someday we'll, we'll get new ones, but uh. all right. Thank all right, you. I'm going to continue on here. So uh, importance of protecting and safeguarding, restoring city data in an emergency is critical. Uh, contingency planning helps ensure systems and data are up and running as soon as possible following a disaster. Um, this is known as disaster recovery planning. Disasters can include, can include things like earthquakes, tornadoes, pandemics, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an environmental factor. It can be cyber attacks too. Cyber attacks uh, can wreak havoc on a city, on government. Ransomware attacks alone cost 
uh, businesses $8 million in 2019. The original IT disaster recovery audit was published in May 2021. Our objective was to evaluate technology services IT disaster recovery program and determine the extent to which critical systems can be restored in a timely manner. The audit reviewed technology services disaster recovery program from January 1st, 2019 through December 31st, 2020. Other agencies disaster recovery efforts that technology services does not support were not reviewed at that time. The original audit had one finding where we found that technology services had an insufficient disaster recovery strategy and had not prioritized disaster recovery in its strategic planning operations. Some highlights from the audit was that technology services had not pro provided adequate disaster recovery awareness and training for personnel, contractors, or disaster recovery team members. Additionally, technology services had not maintained disaster recovery documentation and it lacked disaster recovery metrics from its system of record. We had eight recommendations to ensure that technology services will be better equipped to recover data and systems during a disaster. In our follow-up, we found that seven of these recommendations were fully implemented and one was partially implemented. We had one finding in the report, technology services disaster reco recovery program needs improvement. We'll begin by discussing all the recommendations that were fully implemented, and then we'll move on to the one that was partially implemented. So first, for the recommendations that were fully implemented, recommendation 1.1, starting on page, one point, on page one, represent other agencies on the Disaster Recovery Committee. The Disaster Recovery Committee has met with various agencies throughout the city to further collaborate and encompass a wide range of agency stakeholders. These discussions occur six times a year and address different aspects of disaster recovery. The invitees for these meetings are specifically selected based on the agency need to be on the committee and their expressed in interest in participating. We inspected the agendas and meeting minutes from disaster recovery meetings and to verify involvement with other agencies and then we found that they are engaging with several agencies' um, involvement. Next recommendation 1.2, starting on the bottom of page one, develop the committee charter. We reviewed the disaster recovery committee charter, which was last updated in October 2021, and found that all items that we outlined in the requirements of the recommendation have now been included. Recommendation 1.3, update disaster recovery documentation for the new data center. In 2021, Technology Services created new disaster recovery procedures for all major components at the new data center and published them in the third quarter of 2022. The procedures now include system architecture and integrations with hardware components at the data center. All procedures we reviewed are updated for completeness anytime a material change is made to the system or at least once annually. We reviewed the updated procedures and found that these are reflected a reflection of the current environment, which includes the new data center and its accompanying systems. And recommendation 1.4, improve the strategic plan. Uh, technology services staff told us that the disaster recovery specific goals for, and key performance indicators were added to their 2022 st strategic plan in the fourth quarter. Uh, 
of 2021. To verify, we reviewed the 2022 disaster recovery goals and objectives. The 15 measurable goals include a focus on disaster recovery procedure, development, documentation, training, and testing. We also found that the plan establishes a process for quick recovery from a breach as well as metrics to track the percentage of completion and gauge the effectiveness of the disaster recovery program. I'll take a moment to pause here for any questions or comments and then we'll move on to the other recommendations. Any questions? Should we continue? Any comments from tech services? All right. Three more recommendations that were fully implemented. Uh, recommendation 1.5, starting on page three, develop the disaster recovery training. Technology services added a training course focusing on disaster recovery awareness to workday. Mandatory training is scheduled for those on the technology services disaster recovery committee and other select personnel who have a role in disaster recovery. The scope of who needs to take the course has been explained, expanded to include all technology services staff who must take the training once every two years. Moving forward, training may be offered for those outside the agency whose roles touch the disaster recovery uh, process to take the awareness training. Technology services reviews training compliance once a month. We reviewed a workday spreadsheet that showed staff compliance and complete completion of the data recovery awareness training, over 95% um, of the staff have completed this. Recommendation 1.7 on page four, periodically review information systems contingency plans. For those of you that don't know, information systems contingency plans are procedures to recover each mission critical information system and are typically developed by each system's content owner. These plan updates are coordinated annually when, when major uh, changes occur to each process. When major changes do occur, and discussions are held on whether an update is needed. We found that technology services documented the frequency of updated continu contingency plans uh, in the official standard. Technology services has established an annual schedule to review all contingency plans and if processes material, materiality changes occur. And lastly, for the fully implemented recommendation 1.8 on page four, update the recovery metrics. Technology services designated ServiceNow as the system of record as we recommended. And it's building out the business application services within ServiceNow to enter these recovery metrics. We reviewed ServiceNow and found that the, indeed the recovery metrics fields have been entered into ServiceNow and are being tracked. So for example, ServiceNow shows that the information systems contingency plans have been developed for each service. Annually, the information systems contingency plans are reviewed and updated to ensure plans are accurate and the process will result in a full recovery. After implementing these recommendations, technology services will be better able to, or has been able to now better, been made, bah, sorry, uh, to um, add other agencies into the disaster recovery committee. They've also developed a charter, updated disaster recovery documentation, incorporated the new data center into disaster recovery plans and provided disaster recovery training. 
By implementing these, technology services is helping to safeguard the entire city from an IT disaster. I'll just take a moment here to pause and uh, for any questions and comments. Seeing no questions, okay. any comments? No, sir. No? All right, one more. All right, one more. So we had one recommendation that technology services partially implemented on page five. Recommendation 1.6 to enhance the backup metrics. We found that technology services is completing backup and restore metric metrics on their critical systems. The metrics are then communicated monthly to the agency's leadership so they can analyze performance trends and make informed decisions. We reviewed the Disaster Recovery Committee Reliabilities Team presentation slide deck for the first and second quarter of 2023. Upon review, the documentation we inspected shows that the metrics are shared with technology services leadership and that backups are completing successfully. However, while the backup statistics are being tracked and monitored, there is still no documented and approved backup policy for directing the process to track and monitor results as required in the recommendation. Technology services address some of the risk related to backup metrics, but because backup metrics still have not been documented into the policy, the risk remains that staff responsible for performing these duties may not be aware of their responsibilities. I'll pause here to pass it over to Technology Services and the Audit Committee for any further questions. Uh, any comment on the partially implemented? Uh, nothing directly other than the fact that, um, you know, this has been a very complex path and uh, you know, we, we were able to uh, move towards where the, where the highest risks were, which was moving to the new data center and, and, and bringing that all online. The, the second piece is we're actually looking at a new product for um, backup and recovery in, inside the city, a new, a new product to actually do that work. Um, and that's been currently, um, under our, I won't say RFP, but we've been evaluating multiple products. The, the, the current product we looked at um, isn't going to meet our needs and we've moved on to a different one. When, that, when, when we've selected the product that will continue throughout uh, the next 10 years, because that's where Commvault has been, uh, we'll, uh, of course, update the policy to reflect those methods that are there. We didn't want to um, upset the apple cart in the middle of things until we've selected the appropriate product and got it operational. Okay, thank you. Jack. Because um, <clears throat> we've had so much interaction, you know, with your whole area, um, and I've been out of town for a number of weeks, um, has there been, are there any changes with the new administration in terms of the top of your department at all? Or is, it, or is Dave still? No, we do have a new uh, chief information officer. Um, Suman Alapati was appointed, about, I believe, about a month ago. Uh, so that has been the most recent change relative to leadership. Uh, procedurally, that has not resulted in any changes relative to this at this point. Thank you. And just for your information, I mean, we have met with SUMA to go through some of the cybersecurity risks that we have seen in the past and we think need to be addressed in the future. So. I would just like to compliment your department. In my eyes, this to me seems like exactly what we want to see, right? Nobody's perfect. It's not fun getting audited. It's not fun to show up and have to defend, you know, 
um, areas that need improvement. But I appreciate that it appears that you took all the, recommendation, all the recommendations to heart. I think this is a solid A in my mind, and I just, as a citizen, appreciate the effort and that you took all this seriously. I didn't hear any excuses. I didn't hear any, well, we agree, but we don't really agree. So I just would like to compliment you on that. We appreciate that, Congressman. Thank you. And we appreciate the, uh, the partnership with the, audit, uh, with the audit department. And we plan to continue. Uh, <laughs> That's how we get better. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to ask to go into executive session, but before we do that, um, I see our controller is here. And Bill, I know there's an outstanding question about the preparation of the schedule of federal financial assistance. Uh, are you here to give us an update on that? I would like that, yes. So just to refresh the committee's memory, um, BDO had suggested that the schedule of federal financial assistance could be prepared on a cash basis, which would make it an easier audit, would make it an easier schedule to prepare, at least from their standpoint. I think the controller was going to take that recommendation into consideration and is here to tell us maybe how we're going to do it for 2024. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we took that recommendation back to the team and we had discussions about um, what that would mean for the timing of the audit and also the effort that would be required for us. Also that this is coming, you know, this would be for 2023 and here we are getting ready to wrap up 2023. So at this point we feel strongly that it would be, um, it, it would add a lot of work and potentially not really shrink the schedule if we were to do it this year. I think we're willing to entertain it uh, in subsequent years, but it, it's just too late for us at this time. I think it would, we also don't necessarily agree with BDO that it would cut down on the timing of the audit. Um, you know, initially looking at it that it might, uh, but when we're going back and forth between cash and accrual accounting and our act for is accrual, we would still have to make adjusting entries when we, when we did the act for, uh, there'd be a lot of reconciliation involved with that. We also did some research, we couldn't find any other larger local governments that are, are doing separate accounting basis for their ACFR uh, and their in their CFA. So at, at this point, we think it's, we just don't have the time to prepare to do that for the 2023 audit, but again, we'd be willing to revisit it for 24. All right, any questions for Bill, Jack? Uh, Bill, when you were, <clears throat> when you talked to some other governmental, <clears throat> other government, large governments, in terms of not doing it, did they indicate to you uh, that they hadn't thought about it but weren't doing it, or did they indicate what the reasons might have been for not doing it? Because you know, when you're talking to people, you usually get some feedback in yeah. terms of what their experiences have been. So the feedback that we got is that it would be unusual to have two different accounting bases for the CIFA and the and the HACFR, and we we would have to do the work to. We would essentially be doing two CFAs. We'd be doing the cash basis, and then we would still have to do it on a cruel basis to reconcile everything back to the actor. Do, do you have any idea, or what's your best guess, I think, at this point, in terms of additional, uh, I was going to use manpower, but we can't, um, person power to 
in effect keep that second set of books? Yeah, it would at least double the effort on the CIFA. And we have, we have uh, one, our person that prepares the CIFA, I mean, she, she spends 75% of her time for a month or month and a half preparing that. So it would, it would at least double that work. Thank you. And we're, we're all for looking at opportunities to, to shrink the timing of the single auto. We know, it's, you know it was better this year than last year. Um, but we, we think we can complete it sooner this time around. So I think we're optimistic that we can cut some time out of the process, but uh, we're just not comfortable that this is uh, the, the right approach to try to reduce the timing. What section of the ACFR is the schedule of federal financial assistance in? It's not. That's what I thought. <laughs> so why do you have to reconcile the schedule back to the ACFR? We, we're still going to have things on a on an accrual <laughs> basis. I mean, we could do it cash basis in the middle of the year, but we're still going to have to. There, there's going to be things moving around constantly. So maybe it's not necessarily adjustments for the ACFR, um, but but we're still going to be having to look at accruals, especially when we do the switch over year. Um, if we were to do it that year that we switched over, it, it would be extremely difficult to to pull out everything that's moving. Okay. Other questions for Bill? Thank you. Appreciate your attendance. Yep, thank you. Our next item is general business, which our next meeting will be here Thursday, November the 16th at 9 a.m. Um, with that, I'd like to ask to go into executive session. We have some audit matters that uh, are confidential, that they were disclosed publicly could um, you know, cause harm to the city and county of Denver. So is there a motion to go into executive session? So moved. Is there a second? Second. Any discussion? All in favor say aye. 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 We are in executive session once that green light goes out. more than Apache political map. Town and country represent different economic realities, different connections to the surrounding world, different opportunities. Perhaps it is a simpler narrative to tell because it isn't nuanced. At what point do we describe this relationship in another way? This is the land of the Arapaho and the Cheyenne. When the gold rush of 1859 kicks in, that influx of people forced the Native Americans out of this region and no access to land or water after that. Consider the culture and society and the mindset of the Western Europeans coming out here. That's the way they felt things should be. That's that manifest destiny attitude. How did the farmers obtain the oldest water rights and maintain them today? What well, goes back to those gold miners who turned to irrigation? Benjamin Eaton was one of the earliest water developers in our area. He obtained his money from uh, investors from London. 
there were developers that came out here from Kansas. There was T.C. Henry who came out to Colorado to develop irrigation systems to make money and make it rich. And so his idea was to develop communities on the West Slope and along the Front Range based on irrigated agriculture. A lot of other irrigation systems were developed by just a group of farmers in an area that put their labor together and dug the ditches together and then divided up the shares. It was a combination of local control, local farmers, and then outside international investors. So the Greeley and Fort Collins irrigators got together, worked with the state legislature to get in the Constitution of Colorado in 1876, the doctrine of prior appropriation, first in time, first in right. And that's what continues today. Those senior water rights that they obtained by going through the state of Colorado transferred or, or were turned over through the years to next generations of family, typically the sons of the families that wanted to continue to farm. Basically, the water rights stayed within the community that settled the area in the 1860s. That slowly changes as urban areas develop. Population centers in Colorado have drastically shifted since the 1940s. Today, about 85% of the state's population lives along the Front Range, a connective string of towns and cities spanning over 200 miles from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs. The state's population has grown by more than 1.7 million people in the last 20 years, with the vast majority moving to the urban corridor. If the next 20 years are anything similar, the state's population is projected to be nearly doubled. Transferring water from farms to cities is not a new practice. Urban centers throughout the West, Las Vegas, Phoenix, and Los Angeles, to name a few, were grown by human-engineered systems. About 50% of the Denver metro area's water supply comes from the Colorado River, delivered through a network of tunnels and ditches that move water from west to east. 80 plus percent of our economic activity in Colorado happens in the Front Range. 85% of the water is held in the rural areas. Colorado has one of the most expensive water rights, especially on the Front Range. Even taking a Western US perspective, it's very high priced water. The value of water is a complicated question. Mostly what we're targeted at is the market value of a water right. So the value to the seller and the value to the buyer. Buy and dry is generally when a municipality or a, or a developer representing a municipality will go out and purchase senior water rights from a willing seller from an irrigator. And when you do that, the land has to be no longer irrigated. It's dried up. So in this arid environment, that means land that had been irrigated for 100 years, grown corn or whatever, now is reverted back to dry land, which in some cases can be weeds. What does that do to the value of the land? The tax base goes down, less money for schools, for, the, for roads. You lose a farm family, they, they move away, so your, your population goes down. That's one example of buy and dry. Another is when a developer wants to build a bunch of houses, condos, whatever, on the fringe of a community. They'll acquire the farm, the water rights, transfer it to the city for their water requirement in order to develop the property into a residential area. It's one of the most affordable ways for municipalities to obtain water rights. And if you're a mayor and city council or a community water board and you're representing your residents, 
Are you going to look for some of the least expensive options to obtain water for your community? Water is a human right. Everyone has the right to water, to drink, to clean, to bathe. The next tier then is the right to use water to generate wealth, which could be irrigation, develop property, those sorts of things. To me, that's not, that's not a, a human right. That's an opportunity. How in the world do you determine factors of fairness and equity and wealth in a way that makes sense and are acceptable to the majority of society? Demand exceeded supply long ago. Farms, cities, and industries use more water each year than Colorado's rivers provide. What already exists melts into declining reservoirs, flows down over-allocated rivers, or is stored in overdrawn aquifers. Climate change is making a tenuous situation worse. Colorado is experiencing the beginnings of a warmer, drier future. Declining snowpacks and diminishing stream flows is a certainty. Models show flows in the Colorado River could drop by as much as 55% by 2100. The supply and demand gap continues to widen. The supply and demand gap is an issue that people in Colorado and the water world have been looking at for a long time. We don't have enough water to meet the demands that we've projected. Are we going to be able to get all the water that we think we need? We don't know. A lot of the demand comes from development, so expanding the footprint of where we live, expanding into areas that you know need to pull an entirely new water supply into that region. When you have an increase in temperature and you have increased evaporation from the soils, things get hotter, plant communities have to work harder to do the same. Science is really showing us a clear, very clear temperature direction globally. There's certainly a warmer future, and that means that we're going to have more variability in our climate patterns that we historically see in Colorado. So there's going to be an increase in both frequency and intensity of a lot of our major hazards, such as floods, droughts, and wildfire. The, the general track of the western U.S. is that our arid regions are expanding. The question is, you know, what can we actually do in real time? and you come back to, well, we can't create more water, who is at risk? Can we make sure our farmers and ranchers and cities have enough water to get them through to the next winter season? And it's strangely always with the hope that we're just going to have a great winter, right? Every city I know has a plan, a vision of what they want their city to look like. You have to meet that vision. So we're looking at needing to acquire another 40 to 45,000 acre feet of water over the next 50 years. A lot of it will come from agriculture. Buy and dry is going to continue, and it is continuing because there's not enough options available yet, and the cities need certainty. We need to be able to say to our citizens, you will have water. While there's always been risk and uncertainty involved in farming, the stakes are higher than ever. In many regions fueled by agriculture, the number of farms has declined. Family ranching operations have been disappearing from the Colorado landscape for decades. 
succumbing to the trends of high land values, labor shortages, and fierce international competition. Financial and climatic forces are aligned against agriculture. However, there's a deep sentimental value attached to these generational homesteads. Selling their water means selling their past and their future. So I always say that we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, so basically my family was Spanish settlers and they never moved, they just stayed in one place. Do you feel that connection to especially the Hispanic heritage because it really was so part of how they lived and their lifestyle with the sheep and how they irrigated. And I'm not just talking like from an economic standpoint but also from, from a spiritual and an emotional standpoint. Those are part of the culture identity of these communities. My grandfather was always on the point of foreclosure. One time his sheep were having babies and the bank came and loaded him up into a trailer because he had defaulted on a loan. I mean, my grandfather struggled on this farm financially and, and emotionally. I mean, it was really hard for him. He was offered a million dollars once for his water, all his water, and he said, no, you know, a farm is nothing without water, and he refused to sell. Really felt that connection to my grandfather of like, you know, we have to keep the water and the land tied together, and we have to make sure that this farm stays a farm. Water investors continue to eye the San Luis Valley, an agricultural community separated by mountain ranges from the Front Range. This valley is one of the driest places in Colorado, receiving less than seven inches of rain annually. Farmers rely on groundwater when rivers and streams can't adequately deliver. This underground bank account has been overpumped and underfilled, leaving water users under legal pressure to bring the aquifer back into balance within the next decade. This makes the notion of moving even more water out of the depleted region particularly difficult. Renewable Water Resources is a project that is proposing to export 22,000 acre feet while retiring 35,000 acre feet here in the valley. That water will be pumped from wells 2,000 feet underground and then piped up to the Front Range of Colorado. And so this will go to help make up some of that 500,000 acre foot shortfall that the residents along the Front Range are experiencing. The conversations uh, that I've had with farmers and ranchers that are wanting to learn more about the project or wanting to explore the option of selling a portion or all of their uh, water rights, they've varied. When you have commodities going up and down, that makes for instability. So we need to diversify our economy here in the San Luis Valley. Water is one way we can get there. We're proposing to retire water closer to $3,000 an acre foot. What we've found, some people are intrinsically opposed to exporting water from one basin to another to benefit the metropolitan area. Who am I to tell my neighbor they can sell their house or not sell their house or sell their water rights or not sell their water rights? It's a property right here in Colorado. The humans will always win. The residential will always win in, that, in those economics. We are a small population. I mean, there's only like 40,000 people in the valley. And the Front Range is millions of people. And even though we've been farming here for six, seven generations, some families have been here for that long. When it really comes to push to shove, we're just little tiny voices in a really, really big issue. Somebody decides to, to sell their water, it doesn't just affect that one farmer and benefit that one farmer, it, it, it has ripple effects to the whole community. You suddenly take out a whole bunch of water, the water slows down, and then you don't even get as much water as you used to. 
I have seen the potential for losing something so precious, and, and it goes beyond money. Obviously, I'm not making millions of dollars doing this. You know, I'm doing this because it's part of who I am. The decisions made about land and water use today will shape what Colorado will look like in the years ahead. The housing boom on the Front Range has led to soaring wholesale water prices, which are now some of the priciest in the American West. Housing prices have more than doubled in the Denver metro area since 2010 as a result of developers spending more on limited water supplies. Increased competition for resources also adds to the pricing frenzy. It almost seemed like there was a competition for all the small communities to grow. And two, everybody wanted to move out and see the open spaces, see the agricultural land. It was so beautiful to see the crops growing. So that competition for the resources really drove up the prices of both the land and the water in this area. In the early 2000s, my parents and I, we've had this conversation about 15 years ago, whether to move from the Brighton location because we saw the growth coming so strong and the challenges that, would, that we would face. If I wanted to expand the operation here right now, I couldn't because land and water values are so high. I couldn't afford it with the, what I'm making on, on fruits and vegetables. So the margins are very, very tight. Labor costs have continued to escalate. That's one of our biggest costs, actually, is labor because it's such a labor-intensive process. And, and two, the risk of investments are, are so big. When you're investing over $1,500 an acre and all of a sudden hail takes it out in one second, that's a pretty big pill to, to swallow. I mean, in 2019, we lost 80% of our onion crop. And uh, what it's three years later, and we still haven't recovered from that, those losses. If I were to sell out, I, I don't think the city of Brighton economically would be hurt because there was plenty of other industries that would be happy to move in. I wouldn't sell off just the water to sell it all because it would be hard just to see the land dry up, especially when you knew what it used to be. Just picturing a plant shriveling up and dying. One time I joked and said, you know what? The city should just buy my farm and I'll manage the farm for them. And that way they can have the opportunity to use the water off of that farm if they need to. So I think it's gonna take somebody that is not steeped in the traditions that we're currently in, understands the historical past and how we've gotten here. Crowley County, once a bountiful agricultural region along the Arkansas River in the Eastern Plains, is an example of how short-term choices can lead to long-term consequences. Through the 1970s and into the early 2000s, more than 90% of the irrigated acreage was dewatered. Buyers were looking and sellers were willing. Farmers in neighboring communities felt similar pressures and experienced firsthand the ripple effects of what could happen. I grew up and spent all my life in, in Rocky Ford, and I farmed here for 40 years plus. It was a family farm, raised cattle and uh, vegetables, made a living. There was a time when there were a lot of family-owned businesses, a lot of family-owned packers. Those businesses are their history now. There are fewer farmers today than there were 50 or 60 years ago. One farmer can feed a whole lot more people today than he could back when. From even the, the 1950s to today, the production of a lot of these crops has more than tripled. July the 20th in uh, 1990, I remember that date pretty well. It, that, 
that stuck in your mind, and I could hear that hailstorm coming. It was the afternoon, and I could see the cloud to the west. To see that all gone in 15 minutes is pretty heartbreaking. The next year, I had been harvesting cantaloupe for maybe a week. The news somewhere down in South Texas came out that beware about eating cantaloupe because there's salmonella in the cantaloupe and uh, it had nothing to do with the cantaloupe that were raised here. But the buyers said, cancel all my orders. I need no more cantaloupe. We can't give them away in the, in the store. So I had two hits two years in a row. It was not a tough decision for us to decide to go ahead and sell the water. It was somebody who wanted to give me something for what little I had left. What did it feel like when I sold the water? It was a funny feeling. I mean, I knew what I had done, but I'll tell you one thing that I, I tell a, pe a lot of people. The day I decided to quit farming and buy buying seed and fertilizer and putting a crop in the ground, that's the first time that I could sleep during the growing, growing season. The water, yeah, it was gone. And yeah, I had a, a decent bank account. I didn't have to worry about paying the bank back and paying a lot of dadgum bills that made you worry. It's wonderful, but money is nothing but the root of all evil. The before was irrigated crop and high productive land. The after is, it's been revegetated. It, it does not blow when the wind blows. It's not a dust bowl. Some grazing for livestock. It's not development land, developing cities here, developing much of anything. It's just like Eastern Colorado Prairie. What's been most misunderstood about the sale of water out of the Arkansas Valley is probably how tough it is to make a living off of an irrigated farm. It's just a hard living, and it, it, it's very evident out there that there are not many young people coming back to the farm. You'll find that across this nation. Our societal challenges are complex and dynamic. The answer to them isn't solely an engineering or a social equity solution, or only an economic or conservation-based approach. It needs to be all of those things. To manage this scarce resource, we must find the radical center and figure out how to live within our means, individually and collectively. While the state's population has increased dramatically, overall household consumption continues to decrease. Municipalities are stretching every drop of water through improved technologies, conservation incentives, and education. Water resource management alone isn't enough. Thoughtful land use planning needs to happen in tandem. If you want to preserve both agricultural uses and serve the need of providing housing for people, you have to conserve water in the municipal setting. We are a high prairie desert, and our vegetation should hopefully be complementary to that. How do we build a community that has a wonderful lifestyle but doesn't need a lot of water to do it? That was the genesis of Sterling Ranch. What you put on the outside is lost forever. So manage what you, where you put your grass. You do need parks, you do need athletic fields, but you don't need big yards. And if you are going in your yard, use plants that don't use a lot of water. 
it's switching your mindset from supply, let's go get more, to demand, let's use less and still have high quality. We have to put our residents in control of their water demand. They're not in many jurisdictions. You get a bill at the end of the month. What do you do with it? You know, here we've invested in the technology where you have two meters in every home, an indoor and an outdoor, and they're different prices, different rates. It's based on kind of a budget, so you kind of get a, a certain amount based on your lot size that you get to, to deploy. And if you want to put it in grass, you can get small strips of grass. If you want to save it and use it for trees, you can do that. So rather than cutting grass, you're out walking and seeing nature. That's how we grew up in Colorado. That's what we wanted. Denver Water estimates that in their typical consumer, 50% of that water utilization is outside. In Sterling Ranch, it's running about 33%. Denver Water has almost doubled the amount of customers they have on their system, and water demand stayed the same since the 70s. So the Front Range is adopting it. There are a lot of questions about the future of agriculture as our population and climate continues to drastically change. The agricultural community in the San Luis Valley recognizes the need to fix a massive water imbalance they have created internally. Although bringing the aquifer back into balance is no small task. This effort has sparked a range of conservation methods, including innovative agricultural practices and water sharing agreements with nearby municipalities. This opens the door for collaborative solutions that serve multiple needs. I kind of realized that coming home and trying to change things from within the context of our own culture is a lot more powerful because, you know, a lot of colonization and oppression has come from that idea that we know what's best for somebody else. But one thing I realized is that we don't do well, like especially in our culture, is we don't recognize the limitations of the natural environment. One thing that I really felt strongly was that agriculture should be regional and it should be acknowledging the natural system that you live in. But we were in a situation recently where we were about to lose part of the farm and we had to make some choices, financial choices, to make sure that the farm stayed together. And one of them was a water right rental to the city of Alamosa. The city of Alamosa was so willing to work with us and they respected us. Like we were sitting at the table and there was never this dynamic of like, you're beneath us and we need your water. And so we were able to come up with a water deal that didn't take the water from the farm, but instead of being used for crops, more of our water is going back to the groundwater to help other farmers and also to help our ecosystem. And then the river, I mean, I love that as well. One of the big things that we believe on this farm is you know, we are stewards of this land, and we have to make sure that it's taken care of and that it's cared for and that it's better and improved for the next generation. We came up with a solution that I think respects the natural environment and also helped our farm out of a dire situation. We're not just managing for our own resources, but for all of the states and countries that rely on water that falls here in the headwaters. How we use and share the water has implications that ripple hundreds, thousands of miles downstream throughout the Western United States. It will require a fundamental shift in how we adapt in the climate space. Cooperation and sharing, as sometimes silly as those words sound in conversation, that really is the future. There's not a lot of options that don't involve agreements around sharing of water resources and 
cooperative discussions around how to all exist with very different economies and lifestyles using the same water. Rural communities need somewhere to sell the resources and goods that they're producing. Urban communities rely more than they know on those open spaces. And so you look at these webs of imports and exports, and there is just, there is not a boundary there. We're also learning, finally, hopefully, that the dollar is not the fundamental value that everyone shares. What's at stake? It's the future of the Colorado we all love. It's the Colorado that we've grown up with or that we've moved out here to be around. You know, we love going to the mountains and, and seeing a mountain stream. We love recreating on our rivers and reservoirs. We love having an adequate water supply in our homes and our communities. We know that we need farming and we need agriculture. There are numerous processes to try to answer water supply and demand gap questions in a way that raises all boats. And they are slow and difficult and contentious and so necessary because we all want Colorado to be a place that will live forever. And water is the key to that. Irish musician, singer, and songwriter Hosier is coming to Red Rocks on October 17th. Tickets are selling fast, so be sure to grab yours today. An uplifting comeback story like no other, Tina, the Tina Turner musical, is the inspiring journey of a woman who broke barriers and became the queen of rock and roll. Her voice was undeniable. Her fire was unstoppable. The show will be in town till the 29th, you don't want to miss it. Spend an enchanting night experiencing the magic of the museum with your whole family. Wear your costumes while participating in Halloween hands-on science, crafts, and more. Snuggle up for story time and enjoy a show in the Gates Planetarium. After a night of fun, sleep among the animals in the world-famous diorama halls. A ticket includes a pizza and salad dinner, evening stack, and hot breakfast the next morning. It'll be a ghostly good time for little monsters and mummies. One of the most exciting and unique Halloween events is back. Have you ever wondered what a haunted bar crawl would be like? Look no further because this is perfect for those who love to drink and enjoy a spooky atmosphere. Make sure you buy your ticket in advance so you can select a fabulous costume and crawl in style. The Broadway Halloween Parade is back. The family-friendly event held annually in the eclectic and funky heart of Broadway features spooky floats, bands, marchers, and more. The parade is Saturday, October 21st from 6 to 8 p.m. and will delight Halloween fans down Broadway from 5th Avenue to Alameda. 
Get there early to find the best viewing spot along the route. Visit the event website to get all the information, including how to volunteer and best public transit routes to get to the event. The Green Bay Packers will be in town to play the Denver Broncos. This matchup will be one to watch as it's been 25 years since the Broncos defeated the Packers in Super Bowl 32. Get your tickets today. That's a quick look at what's happening in Denver this week. And stay updated on all things Denver by checking out our socials. My name is Melanie Yazzie and I'm Navajo Diné of Northeastern Arizona. And I currently teach at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I run the printmaking program there and um, and I do education exhibitions, projects in many different places. This exhibition, um, I love the title, it's called Peace Walking. And for me, being outdoors, starting my day with a walk and um, having carving out that time to just be with yourself in your thoughts when you're able to take a walk with your animals, with your loved one, it really calms the soul, it feeds it, and it's that time where memories can flood back into your mind, your heart, and soul. And so this exhibit is all about all these um, memories and actions of, of different things coming into the work. And depending on who asks a question, um, I'm able to unpack a different story. One of the things that uh, is at the center of most Navajo ways of seeing the world is to walk in beauty, to think of things that are beautiful. And um, when I'm trying to make my work, I'm trying to bring a little bit of beauty, um, just calmness into the work to hopefully bring that into my life. When this series of works came together, I was thinking back to childhood, I was thinking back to different points in my life and crossing over different elements that are focused on here in the gardens with memories from childhood, with memories from being in school, like different levels of things. So when people see the works, they'll see all these layers of, of imagery and colors and and it is sort of this colliding. There are elements of screen printing, relief printing, lithography, etching in some pieces, and then I draw and paint back into the surfaces. So there's many layers to a lot of the works I make. I'm very inspired by things that have entered into my family's experience, my experience, and, and I think the human experience shows up in the work. And so there's a lot of things that, that I can speak about, but also people who may not have my background or history. We all live on this planet with different animals and symbols, so those things um, can tie other people to the work, and they can be reminded of different stories in their own experience, which I think um, is really at the heart of some of the things that I'm going after with the work.
Denver and Colorado have a number of food access challenges. And I think in, in 2001, uh, the Department of Public Health came out with a study that said that 33% of Coloradans are food insecure and have limited access to food resources. And 16% of our youth in Colorado don't have access to healthy food on a day-to-day -day basis. We started working with Denver Botanic Gardens in 2014 and built the urban farm that's out here in Mariposa. In 2018 and 2019, we furthered our partnership and opened the Sun Valley Grow Garden over along the South Platte. Denver Botanic Gardens partners with Denver Housing Authority to make these urban farms possible. We provide all of the plants. We provide the people to grow the food. Denver Housing Authority provides the space. The primary purpose of the urban farm here in Mariposa and at Sun Valley are to provide people with healthy, nutritious, locally grown and organically grown produce free of charge. I don't know if this uh, community garden wasn't available in the fresh produce, I would have to go to the grocery store where you know, everything at the grocery store is twice as much now, especially post pandemic and such. Another goal of the urban farms is to provide people with a space to actually learn how to grow their own food and to connect with each other. Jason, the other Denver Botanic Garden staff here who gives the produce out, they actually build real relationships with the residents who come on a weekly basis. Another goal is to grow food that is, of course, very nutritious, but also food that's culturally relevant and food that people really want to eat. Every year we supply approximately 5,000 pounds of organically grown food directly to the communities of Sun Valley and Lincoln Park through the urban farms, and that's on only a quarter acre of land. At the community garden in Congress Park, members who have extra produce bring that excess produce to Same Cafe as a free in-kind donation. The mission of Same Cafe is to create community through healthy food access. So here at Same, we believe that healthy food is a right, it's not a privilege, but we have a responsibility to make that accessible. And so we make it accessible through three distinct ways. Um, so through donations of time, money, and produce. We get deliveries every day of the week. The menu changes every single day. We believe that everybody deserves a healthy meal and that includes people who may have dietary restrictions. And so working with Denver Botanic Gardens over the last 10 years, it allows us to really think about what produce is grown here, um, how can we make sure that that reaches our community here on Colfax. Um, and it also is really inspiring for our chefs because the Denver Botanic Gardens grows so many varieties of food. So the work that we do here in the urban farms connects pretty closely to the work that's done at Chatfield Farms in that we're growing food for the communities that we're in and we're also growing it in an organic and regenerative way. Pollinators play a lot of different roles in our lives. They give us food, they give us medicine, they give us fibers for our clothing, other raw materials like natural oils, and all of these things come from the plants that they pollinate. Colorado has more than 950 native bee species, which I think is amazing. There are 20,000 native bee species in the world. There's 4,000 native bee species throughout North America. 
One of the reasons that it's believed that Colorado has so many is that the state of Colorado has so many different types of environments, types of ecosystems, from alpine to plains to tundra, rivers and valleys, all of those different things, different types of bees like to live in those areas. There are other pollinators besides bees, butterflies, birds, hummingbirds, flies, flies are pollinators, even wasps. Pollinators are part of the reason that we have our natural world around us. 70-80% of plants are entirely dependent on having a pollinator in order to produce seed and survive. I mean, we think about it in terms of crops and food and stuff like that, but think about plants in the wild, like alpine plants in the mountains, in the Rocky Mountains. All of those wildflowers in the Rocky Mountains that we love to go see on our hikes, all of those are completely dependent on a pollinator. Any type of flowering plant that needs a pollinator would no longer exist. You can help pollinators by doing just a few things in your home garden. First, you wanna have things blooming throughout the season, um, including spring and fall for early and late season pollinators. You want to provide a safe place for them to nest. Um, and that is as simple as some bare ground in your garden, because a lot of bees are nesting bees or uh, when you're cutting back your plants, don't cut them back all the way. Leave like 12 inches or something like that because some pollinators nest in those stems. You wanna provide water, and this can be a bird bath, a pond, or it can be as simple as putting a shallow bowl out in a sunny spot that they can access. You also wanna protect them from chemicals. So you wanna to try to reduce or eliminate your use of pesticides. You don't want to invite them into your garden and then have it not be safe for them. Thank you for joining us this morning. We have a huge route to go through, so we're going to move through this really, really quick. Everything that we do, end statements, strategic roadmap alliance, Coherence is finally here at DPS. We're going to go to DMLK. We're going to go to Montbello. We're going to go to the greenhouse. We're going to go to GW. And then we're going to go to DCIS Baker. All right, we just arrived at our first stop for this year's bus tour. We're here at Dr. Martin Luther King Middle School High School. All right, peeps, this is for their athletic gym. The school was designed as a middle school, and we have since evolved from grades six through eight to six through 12. So we're adding a new gym, we're adding new locker rooms, we're adding coaches' offices, training spaces, concessions, tickets, a full suite of athletics. So one of the other things that was important in this space is to have natural light. Right over here is going to be a soccer field. Any lockers that we provide, we are required to provide a certain percentage of lockers that are accessible to all bodied students or students with any disabilities.
So here at Montbello, in addition to the new academic center that will support 1,500 students, we are going to maintain the existing auditorium, pool, and gymnasiums. They're going to be a nice complement to what the new facility is. I think that this main entry is going to be really neat. It highlights as you come into the main entry from the parking lot where the tour started. I think that that kind of starts to set the tone of what everybody's about to get into as they come into the doors. It reminds me of an airport concourse. Right because it's so open right now. The project will be completed and ready to go in August of 24? 2024, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you all for coming. We're just gonna walk back to your buses to go to your next stop. Welcome to the DPS Glenbrook Greenhouse. Nearly half acre of produce being grown on a 12 acre site and we have plenty of room for expansion. This past school year we harvested 4,080 pounds. Just in the month of July we harvested 4,000 pounds. Benefit for students is we have locally sourced food. We cut down on trucking costs, shipping costs. We have a fresher product that goes immediately to our students. It's perfect. Have vanilla that means fully fun things. We can give our kids fresh fruit. I'm Marisa Vasquez, principal of DCIS. Welcome to our library. Before they had um, just big shelving, which they did not want. They wanted more flexible shelving. Also a library that was co-designed by your school, your school leadership and those who know what DCIS Baker needs. Where they're reimagining their library to make it an incredible space for our kids and our staff to come together, to collaborate and to continue with learning. Our last stop of the day was out at George Washington, G-Dub. That's where they are getting a new multi-purpose artificial field to replace the one that's been on the ground for 10 years plus. We're looking at such a wonderful, wonderful replacement field at George Washington High School. It's new, it's easy to maintain, it uses up less water. So exciting times, we brought everyone together. There's a lot of great work going out there. PDC, Planning, Design and Construction, could not get this work done without all the support and our partners, both internal and external. So at the end of this exhilarating, exciting bus tour, I realize how much we have done to ensure that you're successful. So every scholar and those who are in queue who will be part of this journey. We are setting up our students for success. As the proud superintendent, I'm excited that I can say with absolute confidence that we're honoring DPS Thriving. Bring up stuff that is happening in the state currently. When I was thinking of picking out classes for next year, speech and debate was the first one I chose. It's something I've done since freshman year, and I've just absolutely loved it. This program has taught me a lot about public speaking. Um, I honestly would not even be able to be talking to you right now without this program because I'm just a very nervous person and this has taught me like people skills, just generally how to talk to people. So my event, it has really helped me essentially learn how to speak on the spot 
like with proper preparation backed up with evidence, but a lot of just coming forward and speaking. My event is an event in which everyone writes and memorizes a 10 minute speech. But my primary event is public forum debate. I do extemporaneous speaking, which means I don't write anything outside of school, but I'm doing a lot of reading and listening to podcasts and just getting caught up in the news. I do Lincoln Douglas debate and we have a topic switch every two months. Um, another event called Public Forum has topic switches monthly. And then the, our third debate event, um, Policy Debate, has year-round topics. Currently, we are ranked fourth in the nation. And we're additionally ranked first in Colorado. Not only did we win the state championship, but we're also ranked first in the state. The world of high school speech and debate are students who are competing, you know, not with balls, not with bats, they're not at a court, they're using their mind, they're using their words, they're using their voices, and that that's incredibly empowering. Cohen represents what teaching should be. Not only pushing kids to where they need to be and, you know, teaching content and helping, personal connections and actually understanding kids. I think that we absolutely have earned our spot. We've put so much work and so much dedication into building a team that tries really hard and cares about what they're speaking about, cares what they're debating about. One of the most major components in our success at State is definitely our coaching staff. I think our placing really speaks to what everyone puts into it. As we have so many students in the program with 165 kids, it's really personalized. Speech and debate allows people to have a platform to educate about things that they're passionate about. I think that it's a, a cool experience to be able to express those values and passions and anyone regardless of their event is able to do that. Next. Next. We're G. Trumpets are different. Okay, here we go. One, two, one, two, ready in. My father was a musician broker. So he brought the first mariachi groups from Mexico, like to play at Casa Bonita. And then from there, they played at different venues and things like that. We did not go over Guadalajara today, so I want to go ahead and go over that to start with. Okay? too bad. Why mariachi? Because I thought that there, there was a need to have it. I felt like I knew mariachi music. I loved mariachi music. It was something that I really loved that I thought that the kids should also get that opportunity to explore that part of their culture. My ancestors, they were like musicians in Mexico. My cousins, they play mariachi, my sister, and like it inspired me. I think mariachi music relates to Hispanic heritage because it's part of their culture. It's part of who they are. It's part of what is inside of them. You don't have to be of Hispanic culture to appreciate and love mariachi music. I've been playing the violin for five years. I was hesitant at first to join mariachi because my dad plays music and I seen how much like, what, it's fun, but it, there's also. Even the sad songs are like, you get into it, especially if the crowd is like really exciting, doing gritos. 
people do gritos when they are excited about a song and they want to share that. So they do something like this. With our mariachi program, we start with the students that are in third grade. And then from there, if they want to continue with the program, then they do so. It's not easy to go ahead and learn to play an instrument, to learn to play an instrument and have to sing as well. And this is an after-school program, and it's not a cheap program. When you're looking at the mariachi outfits, instruments, instructors and that, everything starts to cost money. If there's a way that you could help the program, that's awesome. Party. Happy birthday with Valverde. Today was a massive and momentous celebration for our 100th year. Valverde was built in 1923, and now, as you know, it's 2023. And this has been a staple and hub of this community for the last 100 years, and we needed to honor that. So today was really incredible. I just got done crying. <laughs> Tell we sang happy birthday to our school with our whole community, which is when I started crying. And now we are having a party. This area used to be um, celery fields, and so it was green. And the original school was up on a hill south of here in 1890. The actual school started on Navajo Street, and it looked down into a valley that was green. And so Valverde, Green Valley, here we are. We're standing in front of the old main entrance of Valverde Elementary, which is no longer because Alameda is such a large street now. I lived here and I came to this school in the 80s, and we used to be able to enter into the main entrance of the building. As a little Mexican girl, I couldn't have imagined that I would one day stand here before you as president of the board. And I hope that there's a president coming out of Valverde in the next few years. I came to Valverde when I was in second grade. Valverde means the world to me. I came to Valverde as an eight-year-old, um, second semester of second grade, a monolingual immigrant. I didn't know a single word of English, uh, only two, yes and jelly, and that's it. So everything I learned um, uh, was because of Valverde. The next chief of schools could be sitting right here today. We just heard from Cesar, little se second grader, who's now running all schools. We heard from Madam President Sochi Gaitan, third grader, now running everything that is policy in our system and how far we have gone when we weren't allowed in the room back when we went to school. And I would argue 100 years ago was even worse. But one thing that stayed 100 years ago was our commitment to the community. We have the most incredible families and students and our staff. It's just such a passionate place to be. You know, something that everybody says when they walk in the doors of Valverde is that it feels like home and it feels good and it feels comfortable um, and it feels happy and loving and safe. And that is something that we strive for, for our kids.
Hi, welcome to Denver Parks and Rec at Home. My name is Haley, and today we're starting with the basics. We're going to be painting a still life. Uh, what you need for this is a canvas. Uh, if you have a small easel, that'll be really helpful. I have three different sizes of paint brushes here. Um, something to wipe your paint brushes on, different acrylic paints, and some water. And of course, you need your subject. When you start with your object, you want to look and see where your light source is coming from. So because we're in a studio, we have our light source coming from above, and you can see that directly shown on the object. Um, right here you have the light spots, and then you'll notice that there also is some shading. So because of the light, we have these natural shadows kind of at the bottom, and then given off by the object here on our mat. It's our natural instinct when we want something to be darker to add black. But today we're actually going to work with complementary colors. And if you don't know what complementary colors are, I have them right here. In art, there are certain colors that naturally complement each other. And these are the basic ones. You have purple and yellow, orange and blue, and red and green. And so we use these colors both to bring out each other in a painting, but also when you're trying to create a shade, uh, you use the complement to take it down a tone. So, for instance, if I wanted this to be darker and I added black, it would get darker, but the color wouldn't shine through as much. Whereas, this is kind of an orangey color, so if I looked at my complementary colors, I would see orange, and then know that if I added a little bit of blue to the orange, that would make the object darker in a more natural way. So, I'm going to go over that and show you guys an example right now. So, here I have my palette, right? And I've created an orange and let's say I want to make it a little bit darker. Well, this is what happens when you add the black. See, it's kind of mucky, almost a brown, orange, gray combination. But when I use blue, just a little bit, the color still stays intact, but you can take it down a notch. So what this is essentially doing is we're lowering the intensity of the orange without taking away the vibrancy. And this will be easier to see on the canvas too. So when we're first starting our painting and there's no wrong way to do it. This is just how I do it. Um, we're going to pick sort of a neutral color. So this orange would actually be fine. And we're going to start to make our outline. And when you're making your outline, I don't want you to think too hard about uh, whether it's perfect. There will be lots of time to edit and go back over it. And painting is all about the layers. So we'll be building layer as, layers as we paint. So remember that when you're thinking about the object, we don't want to base it on what our brain thinks. We want to actually look at it, and it's important when you're painting to always be looking at your object. So I'm going to start with a general image of what I'm seeing. And keep in mind your canvas size because you don't want it running off the page. I've done that many times. That's why we're just doing a 
general outline is because we don't want to get too detailed and then have it be much more difficult to go back and edit. So it's good just to put the object on the canvas. It's not only about the object that you're painting, but it's important to note the negative space, so the space that's not the object, um, and how this plays with the object. So for example, if I look here, I'll see this negative space, and then I'll look at my hand, and there's a shape here as well. Um, and it's important to mimic that and take that into consideration uh, when you're creating your object. That kind of helps set the object's uh, placement as well as its shape. So once you have your basic object down, right? It's not perfect, but it's on the canvas and we have a shape that we know that we're going to be working with. Then you want to start adding in the background. And the reason why the background is important in painting is because unlike with um, pencils where you can erase your mistakes, you don't really have that option here. So for example, here I made this line a little too big. I want it to be a little flatter. So what I would do is I would take my background color, which I'm going to use blue. It really doesn't matter, whatever you prefer. And you want to start adding that in. And these two colors are going to start playing with each other. So. If you end up adding too much background, then you can go back over when the paint dries with the acrylic, and vice versa. If your object isn't exactly how you want it, the background's a great way to edit those mistakes. Once we have our base, and a little bit of background in. We're going to start to add the shading. And the shading does not need to be representative of the color at all. I will usually start shading the picture with orange and then go back over, because like I said, it's all about the layers, so what you start with the base is definitely not gonna be what you end up with. So again, we're going to look at our object and we see that this part's a little brighter right on the top. Maybe the rim is a little bit brighter. So we're gonna take note of that and have that be replicated in our painting. And again, this part is the darker part, right? Or maybe over here. And then when we start to add in the towel, you'll see there's some shadows from the watering can on that as well. So to begin, we're gonna start with our mid-tones which is not the super bright parts and not the really dark parts, but everything else in the middle that's kind of neutral, right? And I'm going to use orange. And like we talked about earlier, I want it to be a little less intense, right? Um, this isn't exactly super bright, um, especially from the material. So with that, I'm going to add a little bit of blue, not too much, just a little bit to tone it down. 
and then I'm going to start putting in my midtones. And this can just be pretty quick. You're going to be working mostly in color blocks when doing this. And the nice thing about acrylic is that the layers will dry pretty quickly. So while you're painting one part, uh, the other part that you just painted will start to dry and soon enough you'll be able to go over that again. Again, I'm looking at my subject and noticing some of the parts are a little darker than I thought they were. The handle's not all bright. There, you know, there are some darker spots in there too, so I'm gonna go ahead and put those in. And maybe you start to draw your platform. So if you have your object on a table or a towel, maybe that's when you start to put those in too. My towel is blue, so I'm going to add kind of a lighter blue to the base. And I tend to jump around when I'm painting, so to each their own. Do it at your own speed, where you feel like your subject needs the most attention. Here I'm noticing from my angle that the towel bumps up a little bit, so it cuts off some of my object. That's fine to go ahead and start to put that in too. So I've added most of my midtones for now. We'll go back and add details into that later. Now what we want to do is add in our darker spots. So if you remember from before, I'm going to be using orange, and I'll mix that orange with some blue, which will bring down the intensity but not muddle the color. Sometimes we have an instinct to outline in the darkest shade or in black. But again, if you look at your object, you'll notice that sometimes the edge of the object is actually a lot lighter than you thought. And as you start to shade, you might realize there are some spots on your subject where the shape wasn't quite right the first time that you drew it. And you can go back and add in a little bit of finer detail there. darker when it's out in the direct light on the top. So I'm adding some darkness there. This handle's probably too thick, so I'll end up going back with the blue to cut into it, using it like an eraser, right? And again, acrylic isn't as thick as oil paint, so for instance, this is going to take a lot of layers to really get it to that darkness where it's a lot richer, right? So we're going to have to let this dry and then come back.
noticing now my pot has a small rim around the edge, which is a lot darker than the rest of it, so I'm going to start adding that in. start adding in some of the lighter parts, which you might have to wait for some of the previous layers to dry before you can add in a decent amount, but we're going to get started and add some white to our mid-tone, and then go ahead and put that in. So I see on my subject that it's not really one direct light source that's hitting right here. There are multiple points where it's starting to shine, but those will be added in later when we add more detail. And while I wait for this to dry, I'll go ahead and add in some more of the background. You can see how it's getting a little darker now that we're creating more layers, right? For this part, I'm not using a small brush. It's pretty medium sized. Sometimes when you use a small brush, you're more inclined to worry about the details and that's not, we're not at that stage yet, quite yet. the towel, I'm looking at where does it cross over on my object. So from my angle, I see it's going across the handle right here. So I'm going to mark where it's going. And it kind of loops up a little bit. It doesn't really come at an angle like I had it. So now that I have the whole canvas covered, <clears throat> I can see maybe some parts I painted earlier starting to dry up. You want to let the ones that are wet completely dry otherwise. You won't get those layers, it'll just blend in with what you already have there. And now we can start adding more colors. So definitely put some white on your palette. And then go ahead and add the rest of your colors. You can just add a little bit for now, but you'll likely be using all of them. So on mine, you don't need the black, right? That was just for the demonstration. We'll have orange, blue, green, red, yellow, white. I like to work with purple too. And this is where it's really going to be important that you're looking at your subject. So. 
when we look at this, we think brown watering can, maybe some type of metal, right? But if you look more closely at it, you can see hints of other colors in the metal. So for instance, down here, I'm seeing some hints of red, maybe a little bit of yellow in the highlights, and then it goes up and it gets duller. I'm seeing more of a green shade along the edge. So really use your eye and notice what colors the can's picking up. And don't worry about messing up, you can always go over it. So if you see a hint of any color, just go ahead and put it on there. Go with your instincts and then we can always come back and edit it later, right? And remember your compliments because those will help you create some less intense shades without making it too muddy. I usually don't use too much water. I think it's better to just start getting the paint on the on the canvas. As I'm putting in some of these details, I'm noticing where the form isn't exactly as I drawn it, so I'm taking note of where I'll go back in for highlights later. So for example here, I have this coming at a triangle type shape, but in reality the, the handle really cuts down from my perspective. So that's when you would go in and start editing a little bit. Sometimes it's easier just to edit in white because you can add the color on top later. this drops a little more straight than what I had it as. So I'm putting in those marks now. And I can edit them out with the background soon enough. Sometimes if you want to get really close to what the color, the picture um, is showing and what your object is showing, you can kind of hold up your easel and compare it to what you're looking at. So I might compare this and think, oh, this is a little too purple. Maybe I want to add some yellow to make it less intense. 
and then you have more of a brown color. And then I'm thinking, uh, maybe it needs a little more color, but it's not purple, purple or yellow. We'll add a little bit of orange to it. And you just keep adding. It's kind of a trial and error in which colors are going to work. And usually that's more for the top layer. So once we build up the density of this photo, or of this painting, then that's when you would start to do that. It's also helpful if you've been painting for a while to kind of lean or take a step back. Sometimes you don't notice when something goes wonky until you're looking at it from a different angle. white here not necessarily because this is white but because it'll make it easier to go back over it's always easier to paint something dark on something light rather than the other way around still a little wet, same with this, so I'm going to focus on the handle. And now we've gotten to a point where we can use a smaller brush, because this is a pretty fine detail to be able to get with such a large brush size. So I'm going to switch over, and now I'll be paying closer attention to what I'm seeing on the handle. pretty dry now. You can tell from touching it that I can go back in and start to add more layers to that now. I'm going to go back to my larger brush so that because this is a smooth shape we want the lines to be less noticeable.
you want to add details that you think eventually you might cover up, that's fine. I think sometimes it helps to add context to where you're painting everything, how you want to edit things further before finalizing. Usually your light isn't exactly white. Um, something to keep in mind is just to add a little bit of a duller color to it. That usually makes it look more realistic. water to get this brush stroke because it's a little more detailed and water helps for that smooth clean line when you need it. Okay so I'm getting to the point where I'm liking what I see and for me this is where I want to finish up. I could say some of the last steps are just making sure you have all the highlights on your painting coming out. So look at your model and then look back at your painting and I see, okay, this is a little bit more of a rim. I'm using my small brush because it's a pretty fine area. There's a little shine right here. It's pretty bright, maybe not that bright. You can go back in and take some of it out. And then on my rim, the top, this is looking right now, how thick the paint's looking, that's going to be layers, or that's one of the reasons why a lot of people use oil paint, because it just has that thicker, juicier application to the canvas. I've gotten my painting to a point where I feel comfortable stopping. I like it how it is. And like I said before, it doesn't need to be perfect. You're just looking for what you want. And you could always work on this for days or come back to it later. Maybe later in the month you want to add in another detail or you see it hanging up in your house and you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed that. 
Um, it's never too late to go back and work on it again. So we are here at Northfield High School where we hosted the Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. I just spoke with the Vice President of the United States. Nearly every movement in our country that has been about progress, we have had young leaders in the head. It was an absolutely incredible experience. I think I'm still in shock right now. Looking out over the crowd and seeing everyone and then knowing that behind me was the Vice President. United States of America and that my words were filling the space was uh, something I haven't quite processed yet. <laughs> Vice President Kamala Harris wanted to highlight students and uh, youth voice and uplift them for the work that they've done here at Denver and, and inspire kids across the nation. You are the leaders in this planet. It was really inspiring and energizing. It's just, it was such a privilege to have our work recognized and have it honored in this way. Really what we're doing now is revolutionary. I mean, DPS is one of the first school districts to have a climate action plan and also a climate justice plan, something that focuses not just on you know emissions or renewable energy, but how it's really impacting people within the school district. This policy has been passed in the largest district in Colorado, the largest school district in Colorado. And so now, this policy is one of six governing policies that Denver Public Schools uses, so it has quite a significant impact. We can make change. We can make change not only on the local level, but also on the national level. And ours being student-driven is the part that makes it so unique that, um, again, we've uplifted student voices. You have a voice, you're important, and you're a leader. So that I really appreciate her openness, her open-mindedness, and her willingness to be wise by listening to the youth. We're here, we just talked with the Vice President and we're making change on a national level. So I encourage all students that are interested in climate change to get part of that group, be part of the change, be part of our climate action plan and the actual implementation of it. So come join us. Here is my handle and here is my spell. When I get all steamed up, then I shout. Tip, Tip me over and pour me out. Oh. The smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Cheers. 
Take time to be a dad today. you need to know to ride a scooter or e-bike safely in Denver. Wear a helmet. Do a safety check. Check the brakes and the tires. Make sure all parts are working. If this is your first ride, maybe take a moment and practice before getting out in the street. Follow the traffic laws and go with the flow of traffic. Use bike lanes whenever possible. Always yield to pedestrians. Only use sidewalks when starting and ending a trip. Park responsibly. Use scooter corrals when possible. Safe? Sorry? Safe is good. Tune in to see me, Bryce Manchaka, on the Denver Sessions. On the next all-new edition of Art Scene, we'll feature Meow Wolf, plus Denver Arts Week, Desert Rider, Denver Fashion Week, and Fashionability. episode of Restaurant Steering Me, we're in Aurora, Colorado, on Havana Street. On Havana Street is a business improvement district featuring thousands of businesses and over 130 restaurants. I'm your host, Larry Hurst. I'm going to take you to five restaurants in five hours. Let's eat. Paris Baguette started in Seoul, Korea in the 80s, came to America in the 2000s, and now we're lucky enough to have them in Colorado. There's one in Parker and this amazing new location here in Aurora. When I walked into this place, I was like, holy shit, this place is incredible. Visually just stunning, very open, light and airy. And then you see the display case of all the pastries. And Andy, the owner said, which one do you want? I'm like, how do you pick one? It's like picking your favorite kid. So she brought me a nice selection of pastries. I let her pick. We have a curry croquette right here. Give that a whirl. Like nothing I've ever had before in my life. Light and flaky. The curry's delicious. 
It's just got vegetables inside it. I could eat the heck out of this. In addition to all these beautiful pastries, you can come here for your coffee, they got smoothies, and they brought me a watermelon refresher. And that is refreshing. So we're just, you know, we're working our way through savory first. They make their own bread here. Got a little turkey avocado right here. They really know how to make a great sandwich. Here's why we came here. Pastries. I'm starting with this bad boy right here, an almond croissant. Ah, there's a lot of cream inside. I love this one. Got a very berry pastry here with lemon cream. Right up my alley. You're killing me, man. Every bite's been a 10. A little pistachio mochi right here. Mm, freaking yummy. So you can get whole cakes or cake by the slice. This is blueberry chiffon cake. I think I'm gonna go with just a slice and not eat the whole cake. So the trend that I'm noticing here on all these pastries is they're not as sweet as American pastries, which I love, especially when you're eating this many. Come here, Paris Baguette. You can eat a bunch of these and not gain weight. filmed like 270 restaurants. And oddly enough, this is the first time we filmed an Ethiopian restaurant. Nile Ethiopian has been on Havana Street since 2005. Recently, they've gone through uh, new ownership, a beautiful remodel. Normally, we only ask for two to three dishes when we're doing this show, but apparently, if you're going to an Ethiopian restaurant, you better come hungry, because the owner brought us basically the whole menu. This is the bread that it all starts with. It's a fermented flatbread, basically. And they don't, you don't usually use knives and forks. You use this flatbread to soak it all up. And look at that, you can see right through it. Don't be shy. Your fingers are gonna get dirty. Ooh, those red lentils were good. Mm. Ah! Next on the list, we're trying the chicken wet here. Spelled W-O-T, but I don't think you pronounce it wat. I think it's chicken wet. And so we got a little bit of chicken, whole boiled egg. The smell here is just spectacular. I mean, wow, if only you guys could smell this. That's a 10. That's freaking delish. Wow. Yeah, this is the dish to get. I don't even know if I want to keep going. I want to just keep eating this dish. This is a sambusa. I kind of look like a samosa. The lentils inside this one. I'm sure they could film with other things. It reminds me of my bubby's knish. Okay, so I don't even know what that means. I've been told that Ethiopian people, this is their go-to place. Now I know why. This food is phenomenal. Tofu story started in Queens, and then they brought one here on Havana Street just earlier this year. It's brought to you by J.W. Lee. He's an acclaimed restaurateur known for Seoul Korean Hospitality Group. They've got like 15 different concepts. This is an idea of what they're doing here. You got banchan right here. So it's like a little coutrement. We got a combination tofu soup. It's got some shrimp in there, some chicken. Just a plethora of things like you got white rice. You got purple rice. Even if you want, you can order pressurized rice. I don't even know what that means. We got short ribs here. That's what you hear sizzling. This is ma pa tofu. And then uh, this is a raw crab, soy marinated. Not only do they make their own tofu here, which the only restaurant probably in America that makes their own tofu, they actually grow their own soybeans as well. This tofu is so much better than anything I've ever gotten in a grocery store. Short ribs, scorching hot right here. Tender, flavorful, not spicy. Could eat this whole tray. Combination tofu soup. Got clams in here, we got shrimp in here. Reminds me of hot and sour soup. Time to glove up. Here's a first for us on Ocean Eats, and first in my life, raw crab. Oh, little squeezing got me some meat. That's something I didn't know. I like raw crab. So if you're a vegetarian, Tofu Story is a must visit. If you're not a vegetarian, Tofu Story is still a must visit. 
Young Gun has been on Havana Street for 10 years, otherwise known in English as Dragon Palace. And it's a fusion of Chinese and Korean food. And how does that happen? Well, when people were fleeing China and going to Korea, they brought some of their recipes with, and then living there, mixed it in with the Korean food, and that's what we have here. So it's kind of like Korean street food meets Chinese food. Drinking a peach soju here, little known trivia, soju is the world's most popular spirit, even more than vodka. We got creamy shrimp, we got dynamite, very spicy soup, got octopus in here, mussels, some shrimp, uh, combo lo mein, fried rice. You can never go wrong with crab cream cheese rangoons. Start with the rangoons here. Better than most, definitely better than most. Well, let me, let me make sure. We have a creamy shrimp next. A little sweet, a little crunchy, cooked to perfection. I'm a huge lo mein fan. It's funny, it, it's kind of like Chinese lo mein, but kind of different. One of the better lo mains, we're off, off and running right here. A little different, they brought a side of black bean paste here. I've been told, put this on top of the fried rice. I'll do it, you can't stop me. That black bean paste really kicks it up a notch. New rules, black bean paste has to go on my fried rice. The menu says the dynamite's very spicy. Makes me kind of nervous. Well, it doesn't punch you in the mouth. It's not that upfront, so that's good, it's subtle. Oh, it's building, it's building. Is that addictive spicy where you just want to keep going in? You don't want it to go away? Next time I hit the clubs and get my funk on, I'm coming here after for some of this dynamite soup. Morisco's Los Tres Rios has been on Havana Street for only a month, and I can see why people are talking about it. It used to be Village Inn, they've done a stunning remodel. You can't recognize one inch of this place. They're making gorgeous cocktails. Brought me a margarita flight right here. And then they brought me a nice single serving here. Frozen strawberry margarita right here in this Don Julio glass with some gummy worms. And then Morisco's means seafood. So that's what they brought me. They do amazing seafood and unique presentations. Got a cappuccino right here. I'm not gonna name all the seafood in there because I can't remember it all. And then we got agua chilies here and a coconut. Agua chilies here and a pineapple. And then this is a serrano roll. So they got a nice variety of sushi here too. We're gonna start with the uh, serrano roll here. We got avocado in here. We got shrimp. Get in my belly. I feel like I'm right by the pool in Cabo right now. That's a must order if you come visit. All right, we're going cappuccino next. Served in this mocajete right here. A little shrimp, a little cucumber. Got some oysters, scallops. Light, refreshing. A little bit of spice, nothing too bad. I can see why people are talking about this place. They're getting some good pineapple here. So just got a ton of shrimp in here with the pineapple, red onion. It's kind of like ceviche if you've never had aqua chilies before. It just, I, everything just takes me back to the beach. I just feel like I want to be sitting right on my lounge chair, right by the pool in Cabo. So that was aqua chili rojo, aqua chili verde, obviously it's going to be the green one. Got, look at this beautiful fresh coconut in there. Oh. Head on shrimp, who eats the heads? Tastes a little less spicy than the rojo. The combination right here, shrimp and coconut with the agua chili verde goes phenomenally well together. I've been out to a lot of restaurants. I've never seen presentations like this before. Flavors like this. This is a restaurant you have to put on your things to do list in 2023. If you're looking to get away from the same old hamburger, pizza and wings, which I definitely need to get away from, come to On Havana Street in Aurora Check out any of these five restaurants or any of the other 125 restaurants for that matter. You'll thank me later. We'll see you soon for another episode of Restaurants Near Me. Let's eat.
On this episode of Restaurants Near Me, we're in Denver, Colorado, the Mile High City. I'm your host, Larry Hurst, and I'm gonna take you to five restaurants in five hours. Let's eat. Biker Jim started as a food cart on 16th Street Mall, and then he opened this location here on 21st and Larimer in 2011. He is known as the undisputed king of gourmet hot dogs in Denver. He does an amazing selection. You can get an elk dog, you can get a bison dog, you can get a rattlesnake dog. Today he brought us some mac and cheese bites, some green chili cheese fries. We've got a cheddar jalapeno elk brat with cream cheese, caramelized onions. And then this one here is the rattlesnake and pheasant. We got Stilton cheese, caramelized onions, fried onions. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Let's start off with mac and cheese sticks. I haven't had these before. Oh, get in my belly. That's fantastic. Check out these chili cheese fries. Of course, in Colorado, gonna be green chili cheese fries. Got a little heat on there. Perfect amount of spice. Since he opened this location here, now he's also at Coors Field and Power Field. He's up at CU. You can find him just about anywhere. Mm, 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 mm. I'll be back for you in a minute. Don't go anywhere. I haven't had this combination before. Pheasant and rattlesnake. I haven't had rattlesnake or pheasant on their own. Really interested to see how this tastes. Tastes like chicken. This is the only place you can come to get something sweet, spicy, savory, and in a tube. Third dog, why not? All beef, Sonoran dog. It's got a little bit of everything on top. That's messy. That's my favorite. If you're a fan of hot dogs like I am, check out Biker Jim's. Any of his locations, come to this one on 21st and Larimer, Quartz Field and Power Field. You'll thank me later. can't do an episode about Denver and not come to my brother's bar. They're celebrating 150 years. That makes it the oldest continuously operating bar in all of Colorado. Being located down here, 15th and Platte, with all this modernization, everybody flipping things, they haven't touched a thing here. The tables look authentic, and like the day they open, the floors, the ceilings, this place has character and charm that you cannot buy today. One of their signature items is the condiment tray right here that they have. So we got a little bit of pickles, pepperoncinis, onions, and relish. Great way to fix up your burger or your dog. We're starting here with the bison burger, otherwise known as a Ralphie burger. You know, Ralphie, CU, the mascot. So I go with a little bit of mustard, a little bit of ketchup, a couple of pickles, and a couple of onions from this side. Huge fan of bison, leaner, higher in protein, but don't get it cooked past medium, because otherwise it gets dry. This is not dry, it's really juicy. Anybody who would tell you, come to my brother's bar, they're coming for the JCB, jalapeno cheeseburger. It's got cream cheese on it. I went with a double. There's no reason to put ketchup or anything on this. It is perfect as it is. Mm. Give me a minute. It's been a couple of years since I had one. Bringing back just such great memories. Cheers to 150 years of serving some of the best food in Colorado. Fox and Hen opened up here in Lohi just a few months ago. It is taking the city by storm. It's brought to you by Michael Fox, he's a fox, and Chef Carrie Baird, 
She's the hen. So Fox owns this burrito. Here they have that burrito. Carrie Baird is famous for being on Top Chef. She also beat Bobby Flay in a Huevos Rancheros cook-off. These are called Beat Bobby Flavos. Get it? Huevos, Beat Bobby Flavos? I haven't had Bobby Flays, but those will beat anybody's I've ever had. All right, onto that burrito. Massive burrito right here. That burrito is phenomenal. Ah. So we don't film a lot of brunch because I don't usually like to eat brunch out. Because I'm always like, yeah, who can't make bacon and eggs? It's not that complicated. Well, I can't make any of this. And even if I could, it wouldn't be nearly as good. So I've always thought Softa should do fast casual. You know Softa's my favorite restaurant, right? And there's nobody doing that level of food in fast casual. Well, now there is. Sunny's Mediterranean, one month old in North Denver on 32nd Street. Softa level quality, but not the same recipes, different style, but amazing Mediterranean food. I came here last week for the first time, fell in love, I'm like, I'm coming back to film you. Here we have the Sunny's Sip of Sunshine. Fresh squeezed watermelon in here, cucumber serranos, a little vodka, cheers. Just the right amount of heat in there, delightfully refreshing. So when you walk in right away, you smell the rotisserie chicken and then you see the beautiful oven that he's got, the spit just roasting these chickens all day. You got this gorgeous crispy skin right here. Oh man, you know, it's just gonna fall right off the bone. That's a 10. Onto the fatouche salad here with falafel. So you can get whatever you want here. You want salads, you want sandwiches, and they make it however you want. Put a little tahini yogurt in here, put that with your falafel. That works. Let's get into this harissa hummus right here. No surprise, freaking delish. Mm. This is what I had here the first time I came. The number two, and some of that rotisserie chicken. Got a little harissa on top. Tzatziki, pickled red onion. It was phenomenal, it brought me back, it made me want to film them, made me fall in love. Hope he opens one in my neighborhood. I think that sandwich might make my top 10 dishes of the year. All the elements work really well, you got that incredible rotisserie chicken on there, so moist. And then uh, you got the harissa, house made, got the right amount of kick to it, plethora of vegetables, and pickled red onions, and a really nice touch. If you're looking for some of the best Mediterranean food in all of the metro area, Come check out Sonny's, you will love it. The Burndown opened on South Broadway three months ago and it is taking the city by storm. It's actually my third time here already. One of the reasons why I came back was this right here, the bulgogi fries. I had them and I'm so happy they brought me them again. They're delish. And four stories here. They have live music on weekends, great happy hour. Make sure you hit the rooftop. Epic views of the city. We got a lote dip right here. The bogey fries again, my friend. We have a chicken bacon bama sandwich made with white barbecue sauce. All right, let's do it. No surprise, it was amazing on wings. Goes great on grilled chicken. They also, you can get it on fried chicken. Haven't tried the elote dip yet. Looks like we got some hot Cheetos on there. That makes me do the yummy dance. Back to the bulgogi fries. I've had these in other places. This is the best version I've ever had. You gotta load up the perfect bite, right? This Korean beef on here, spectacular. And the fries are really good too. 
absolutely worth the drive wherever you are in the metro area. Check out the burndown, the food, drinks, views, unparalleled. Denver, Colorado, my city, you killed it. We'll see you soon in a city near you. Cheers. On this week's episode of Restaurants Near Me, we picked a beautiful day. It's early March, it's 75 degrees. We're in Westminster, Colorado. I'm gonna take you to five restaurants in five hours. Let's eat. Bringing a 5280 lager here at 5280 Burger Bar. It's actually brewed locally by Resolute Brewing. They like to focus on local ingredients here and local beers. Even the meat is raised locally here in Colorado. And this is the 5280 Prime Burger. It's got Wagyu beef on it. It's got sharp cheddar, homemade steak sauce, onion ring. What's crazy is they even make their own ketchup. They make their ranch, they make their fries. Great operation. They opened the first location a few years ago in downtown Denver, then opened up this one. There's another one in Austin. And look for a fourth location coming in the coming year. Let's get into this burger. I'm very excited. I'm a big fan. I've been to the downtown location before. Absolutely in the conversation for best burgers in Denver. Let's see if this is one of the best burgers in Westminster. Great combination right here. The bun is just perfect. Love the seeded bun. It's very soft, yet they toast it so it holds up to the juiciness of the burger. The sharp cheddar goes great with it. Definitely a great place to come watch the games, grab a burger, grab a beer, hang out with the boys. Save room for dessert. They make their own ice cream here. They brought me some salted caramel, strawberry cheesecake, and a waffle cone. Love this place. Let's eat. We're at CD's Wings here in Westminster. Whenever I post about wings, people are always like, have you been to CD's? Yes, I've been to CD's. I love this place. They do a great job. They do just a few things and they do them well. Wings are their specialty. Come here, get wings, and they make really unique sauces. So they brought me four sauces to try today. We got the house, the notorious BRG. We got the hot garlic and the honey bee. What makes their wings so great here? They're always fresh, never frozen and they cook them to order. A lot of places will par-bake them like in the oven. Some places will fry them one time and then fry them a second time. Here, you gotta be a little patient. They take 15 minutes, but once you eat them, you'll understand why. It makes a difference. We're gonna start off with the house. We got spicy barbecue, Cajun and garlic in here. I'm a flat guy. Just goes down so easy. You can taste the barbecue, taste the garlic. It's not too spicy, I'd call it like a six. Freaking delicious, I'll tell you that much. Onto the Notorious BRG. So this one started out as a special sauce and they loved it so much that it made the menu. And you can see it's got some ranch dressing in it. I know why that made the menu, that's fantastic. Onto the hot garlic. None of these wings so far are too spicy. They do have some sauces here if you wanna melt your face. And they list the sauces, different heat levels from mild all the way up to, to the hottest. They've got like 20 different sauces here, plus they run special sauces. And finally, hot and honey. So there's also another way to do wings. You could just take this bone out right here, and then you're just left with all the meat right there. Finally got a little heat on that one. Again, nothing's melting my face. Family-run restaurant. The wings are fantastic. If you're a wing fan like me, you gotta come check them out. So if I told you I was gonna be filming a steakhouse in the Orchard Town Center in Westminster, 
Would you expect this? I didn't. Amazing presentations, gorgeous dining room. I'm so excited to try this food. Let me describe what they brought first of all, if I can. Love beets, they got some roasted beets here with a goat cheese creme fraiche. And then we have uh, sunflower seeds on top. And then this steak, it's a filet. All the meats are local. And they dip this filet in soy and then back on the grill and then back in soy. And they got tempura vegetables on top, a little wasabi, uh, a gastrique. All right, let's get these veggies out of our way. Get into this meat. Oh, hell yeah. Cooked perfect. Like butter, it cuts like butter. I see what the soy does. It gets a nice crust on it. Of course, the meat, super tender, super flavorful. One of the better fillets I've ever had in my life. I'm gonna keep eating. As you guys know, I'm a huge beet fan. Beets with goat cheese. I've said it before, I'm gonna say it again. Peanut butter and jelly. This place is bomb. Little homemade apple pie here at Law's Chop House. Puff pastry on top. Let's get into this. A lot of vanilla ice cream. Make this to order. That works. I understand what they're doing here. Made to order apple pie. Really hot, caramely. You add that with the, with the whipped cream and the ice cream. Great way to finish your meal here at Lost Chop House. We're here at the Orchards Town Center at Elevated Q, a fairly new barbecue place. And what they do here, instead of specializing on just like Kansas City, they do a little bit of everything. So we got your Carolina pulled pork, you got your Memphis ribs, you got your Kansas City burnt ends, even got burnt ends on the loaded fries here. And then sauce-wise, same thing. We got the Carolina Reaper sauce here, which I'm a little afraid of, but I'm gonna try it for you guys. We got the Alabama white sauce. I do love that sauce. And the Kansas City barbecue sauce. So many options, where do you start? I'm going burnt ends are in the Alabama sauce. If you've never had it before, I'm a huge fan of it. I love it on sandwiches, it's really good on anything. It's basically a, a white barbecue sauce. It's gonna be hard to keep going. I kinda wanna just stay right here and keep eating all these burnt ends. Not enough place to do smoked uh, turkey. Love smoked turkey if it's done right, and this one looks really juicy. I'm not gonna put any sauce on that. That really doesn't need any. All right, let's see how these ribs do. Oh, I can tell already. This is just gonna fall apart. <laughs> I guess these are knife and fork ribs. Oh my God, look at this. Tried a little bit without the sauce first. It doesn't need any, but I'm gonna try their sauce. I'm gonna try the Kansas City barbecue sauce here with the Memphis ribs. That's a great combination. Still gonna hold off on the Reaper. A little scared. Really excited to get into these fries. Of course, they're making their own hand-cut fries here. But burnt ends on anything, can't go wrong. That should be a staple in every barbecue restaurant. That's amazing. All right, the moment you've all been waiting for. I'll try the Carolina pork. The Carolina Reaper sauce. Woo! That is hot. Just sat down here at Big Mac and Little Lou's, met the owner, Paul. He told me an amazing story. I didn't even realize that the restaurant's named after his two kids. And all the fishes that you see hanging up on the walls here, his kids actually caught now these aren't the actual fishes. What they do is they take a picture of it and then there's a guy who makes a replica of it because they're environmentally safe here and so they, they want to do the right thing by the fish. So they either eat it or toss it back. Growing up on Long Island, places like this were everywhere. 
But in Colorado, it's really rare to find a place like this that you can come and get fresh fish or come buy fresh fish and take it home. Perfect beer to go with this fish right here. We got a red striped Jamaican lager. This is why we're here today. The hogfish. I'd never heard of it in my life. They're famous for it here. Only three places in the country you can get it. And the reason is because they have to spearfish it. So it doesn't make sense economically. And they actually, the diet of a hogfish are crustaceans. They actually, it's a really ugly fish. But because they eat crustaceans like lobster, the meat is really sweet. What they've done today is they almond crusted it, and they got a mustard sauce on top of it with Caribbean rice and mixed vegetables. In case you can't tell how excited I am, it's like I'm back on Long Island, beautiful piece of fresh fish. Keep an eye on their social media. They only get this twice a week, and then sometimes they can't even get it depending on whether the fisherman can't go out and get it. They, he says he brings in 100 pounds, and then it's gone like that. Now I see why. I knew that was gonna be a 10, and it's a 10. That's a 10 plus. If you're not a fan of fish, they have other great options here. They actually have steak here. Uh, Bone-in ribeye, a filet, and pastas. They brought me a spicy shrimp linguine, which right up my alley. Using, of course, Gulf shrimp. I know what they're doing, they serve it with a spoon. It's the only way to eat pasta, you gotta twirl it. Tomato cream sauce on this pasta here with the shrimp, some garlic bread. Ooh, that is spicy. But I would come here just for this pasta. I'm a pasta expert, and this pasta is exceptional. It may have taken us two years and dozens of episodes to finally get to Westminster, but it was well worth the wait. These five restaurants are amazing. We'll see you soon for another episode of Restaurants Near Me. Let's eat. Mike Johnson, the new mayor of Denver. Don't get caught off guard when disaster strikes. Elevating your preparedness knowledge can make a vital difference during emergency situations. As part of National Preparedness Month, Denver's Office of Emergency Management is hosting an emergency preparedness fair. So come and get a free emergency backpack kit to get your preparedness journey started and learn more about our Denver Ready program. Remember, you don't have to get ready if you stay Denver ready, visit denvergov.org slash Denver ready to learn more. Because my parents told me I have to be responsible. Because my first coach told me you can do this. Because my teacher helped me see the choices. Because my coach treated me like everybody else. Because my boss showed me how to do a good job. Because a mentor believed in my potential. Is why I am where I am today. I'm swimming faster than I ever dreamed I could. I discovered that I could work as an artist. I led my high school team to two championships. I am a valuable employee. I have a career that I am passionate about. I will be whatever I want to be. What can you do? What can you do? Like all young people, youth with disabilities should grow up expecting to work and succeed. For more information, visit whatcanyoudocampaign.org.
On the next all-new edition of Art Scene, we'll feature Meow Wolf, plus Denver Arts Week, Desert Rider, Denver Fashion Week, and Fashionability. We have some gems around the state when it comes to parks and historic homes, plus a little irrigation ditch with a big impact, and a new hotel program that is helping to cut down on crime and homelessness. We have some history, the great outdoors, and lots more in this edition of Connected Colorado. Hello everyone, I'm Gary Shapiro and I'm happy to be your new host of Connected Colorado. We are here at the Broomfield Depot Museum and we'll tell you more about this place in just a little bit. But first to Arvada for the annual Kids Fishing Contest. Today is our 2023rd Kids Fishing Tournament in the city of Arvada Reservoir. They said they stocked this, this reservoir with 6,000 fish last month. I just need a school of fish to go by and one of them be like, hmm, I think I'm gonna eat that. A lot of poles in the water right now though. It's great to see actually a lot of the families come out together and I think it's a great bonding experience. You know, a lot of us that have fished when we were kids, you know, we get a lot of memories of, of this event. We placed third last year, got a trophy. So we're hoping to do a little better this year. Trout ripped the uh, rainbow trout. Probably could have been better, but it is what it is. About 11 o'clock, we stop our fishing and then we'll weigh all the fish. Point, point two six. Point two six. Point two six. And we will have trophies and prizes available. So after we award the winners, we will have about 51 raffle prizes. Fishing for me is, it's relaxing. It's, I feel like it's a good sport. It's, it takes a lot of patience. Uh, it's fun, fun thing to do with my son. It is always a great time to visit your local park, and the city of Aurora has more than 100 of them. They're all unique. But what goes in to making these places to play? The city itself is old enough to where we have parks that are 50 plus years old. We also have brand new parks that are coming online you know, almost every year. Hi, I'm Trent Woolley, and I'm a senior landscape architect. The division I work in is called Planning, Design, and Construction. It's exactly like it sounds, so we are in charge of planning new parks, trails, open spaces. We would look at what's there currently, uh, talk to the public to find out what they might like to change in that park, and then start looking at how we can fit certain things in. We are at Havana Heights Park in Aurora. This park was originally built in 1985, and the city has recently decided to renovate the playground in this park. We took a, a pile, a 30-year-old playground, and we're updating that. Where we're standing currently was a basketball court at one time. And it is kind of along the Ninja Warrior style, and I think the biggest aspect that it adds to uh, maybe your workout or just for fun, you can approach it however your imagination really kind of drives you. The renovation of the playground took us almost six months. We started in December of last year, 
and the park is now complete. So as with all of our parks projects, whether it's an open space or in a park like this, our goal is to make sure that we have a safe space, an inclusive space, and a place where everyone can come and have fun. And you can learn more about Aurora's 103 city parks by going to its website. We are back here at the Broomfield Depot Museum now with David Allison. David, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad you're here today. Talk a little bit about this place. Sure. So the Broomfield Depot was built in 1909. It was originally down at a different location uh, at 120th and 287. And it served the community of Broomfield, a very small agricultural community, never more than 200 people until the 1950s. Uh, and of course, it was freight as well as passengers coming through here. The station agent who worked here also lived here. So the other side of this building is kind of the living quarters for this, the station agent and his family. It must have been a chore moving it from that location to this location. It absolutely was. And we're so glad that they did. It was one of those things. The railroad was not using the, the building anymore. And so they were going to tear it down. Some, some citizens came together. They decided, let's save this building, move it to this new place um, here on Depot Hill, where it is today. And yeah, they actually picked it up and put it on a flatbed truck and just hauled it right up here. So 1976. Now, I know from uh, doing a story on this place when I worked for local TV that there is a legend that is actually buried here. Talk about that. Well, there is. Uh, Shep, the turnpike dog, is probably the most famous resident of Broomfield, and Shep's grave is actually just right out here. It used to be by the Denver Boulder Turnpike, which is now US 36, of course. Shep was moved here kind of to preserve the grave as they were expanding the road, and he still rests happily there uh, with all the good memories that people have from stopping, paying their money, and giving a little treat to Shep, or maybe some money for his vet bills, that sort of thing. So wonderful story, and uh, he's still out here. He is as famous as the Turnpike, I believe. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, the Colorado Department of Transportation um, has a mascot, and that is Shep. So. <laughs> I love that. All right, talk a little bit about the Honey House. Yeah, so the Honey House is uh, recently restored. Uh, the Crawford family had uh, around a thousand beehives at one point uh, in their operation. So it was a fairly large honey operation and they used that building to process the honey to make sure that it was in jars and bottles and then they would use that uh, to kind of distribute throughout the state. There is an interesting story I know about how Broomfield got its name and, and a lot of people probably don't know that story. Absolutely. I think the best scenario for the name uh, there, there are a number of theories out there, but probably the most likely and also the best story is that it was named after broom corn. And broom corn is a crop that uh, many people thought grew around here at the time. This is like the 1880s, 1890s. And so they saw this broom corn growing, uh, you know, up in the fields and thought, let's, let's just name it after that crop, and, which is exactly what they did. A lot of people ask me, is Broomfield named after brooms? But it is the crop, right? Yes. And, you know, broom corn, though, is used to make brooms. So so uh, there is a connection there with brooms, and uh, broom corn is, you know, still used for those very traditional brooms today. So there is a history in Broomfield that a lot of people don't know. It's not especially a diverse community over the years, but but that is changing, and it's changing here, right? Yeah. So the history of Broomfield, I think, is is fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, the cities that are north of us here are primarily coal mining communities: Lafayette, Louisville. 
superior. Uh, whereas Broomfield and then Longmont are agricultural communities. Uh, and that story, I think, is an interesting one. Um, there's no coal under the ground. So what does this community need to do? Well, it's, it's agriculture. Uh, but then that changed when the suburb of Broomfield, called Broomfield Heights, uh, really got going in the 1950s. And so in 1955, Broomfield Heights opened, and uh, Broomfield quickly grew from a town of 200 to almost 6,000 by 1960. Uh, and that, that growth and that development continues to this day, for sure. David, talk a little bit about what this museum means to people and what they can see when they get here. This museum, I think, because it is really the only museum about Broomfield's history, what we try to do is put this place in the context of Colorado history and some of the larger trends that are happening in our state. It really is a wonderful place to come. We have great activities for children. We have school groups that come here as well. Uh, of course, the newly renovated Honey House both talks about modern beekeeping and the biology of bees as well as the Crawford family. So tries to bring the history into the present and hopefully forge a new path forward in the future. It's pretty cool, I gotta tell you. When can people visit this place? We're open right now on Saturdays from 11 to 4, uh, but we also have special hours for, for groups as well as school tours, especially starting up this fall. That'll be a really exciting time for us. And they just can contact you how? Absolutely, yes. So contact our website, uh, Depot Museum, uh, at broomfield.org, and that'll be the best place to, to do that. David, thanks for inviting us. Yeah, Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gary. Okay. We are in the honey house that David was talking about at the Broomfield Depot Museum. It's a pretty cool place. You should come visit. Coming up, the Stonehawker Farmhouse in North Glen celebrated a 120th birthday this year, and they held an open house. The farmhouse was actually created or, or built, started to be built in the late 1800s and completed about 1903. It is the only farmhouse in the city of North Glen and it is made of brick, so it's, it is actually on its permanent and only foundation it's ever had. So this is a, actually a Queen Anne style, which is uh, pretty typical of the 1900s. The hallmarks of the Queen Anne style would be the wraparound porch, um, the soffits, the, the soft brick, and just the elegant style that they had in those days. The interior of the farmhouse is pretty unique. We have actually closets in this house, which um, typically farmhouses did not have. Just because they taxed every room in the house and, and closets in those days were actually considered rooms and so that's why they did not have closets. You would see armoires in there. In this particular house, we have a living room, a dining room, the kitchen that we're in. The electricity came in in the late 1920s, early 30s. The house did not have bathrooms. What they had were outhouses in the time, and there are five bedrooms in this house. The community has just come together and has donated uh, fixtures that are hanging from the ceiling, the beds, uh, furnishings, clothing, all types of things. We have installed a barn, and in, inside the barn we have a thrasher, a 1939 fire truck. Uh, we've got Carl's Dairy's um, milk wagon in there. The most unique piece in the house is an 1877 grand piano that has been uh, donated to us by a family that lived in North Glen. 
and uh, we utilize it in all of our events, but always at Old Fashioned Christmas, the first um, weekend of December. And uh, we have it open for two days and sell different items, and, you know, and it's kind of a fundraiser. We have had um, weddings here, and uh, you know, it just depends on who reaches out to us. So we're hoping at some time to actually build a barn in the, uh, on the property and actually open it up for venues, you know, where people can actually rent it. As a whole, the Historic Commission uh, values the assets and the history of the city. And so this was something before the city was even established in 1969. It's here um, and it, it's loved. I mean, and we're willing to, and the city is willing to open it up for people to come in, tour, and enjoy. When we return, tackling homelessness and crime, art in the cemetery, another historic farmhouse, and the Littleton City Ditch. Dad? Just one minute, okay? Hey, Bobo, do trees tell each other stories? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, why don't we go find out? Do clouds take naps? I couldn't tell you. Can birds draw pictures? I don't have an answer for that. Dad, do stars visit their friends? Look! Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. Basically, he had to relearn everything. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. We have our own journey, and we can fulfill that journey at the same time that we are helping our loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey. Okay, Dad. One, two, three. Ah! You saved me. Dad? Are you okay? I'm fine, dear. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. Being outdoors is great unless you live there. Coming up, a new hotel licensing program in Wheat Ridge that is trying to reduce homelessness and crime. Disorder, drug dealing, violence, the Wheat Ridge PD gets all types of calls and more than 10% of those 43,000 calls for service a year come from one area in the city. Police department. The I-70 and Kipling corridor. I'm Amanda Harrison with the City of Wheat Ridge, here to share how our new hotel licensing program is fighting crime while tackling homelessness. 
So my very first call for service was at a hotel where police had located a homicide suspect, called for him to come out, and ultimately had to engage in the use of deadly force as this suspect confronted them with a gun. So that was my introduction to the hotels, and really uh, from there it's been a lot of work to try and make sure that we provide support to the hotels and that the hotels look to us to give them guidance on how to clean up some of the issues that are in those hotels. As the issues with the hotels along I-70 and Kipling grew, residents began reaching out to their council members with concerns over criminal activity, overall safety, debris, and property devaluation. In response, the city of Wheat Ridge took a holistic approach by enacting a hotel licensing program that connects guests who want permanent housing solutions with resources, improves living conditions in the hotels, and reduces crime. So we're asking them to reinvest in the community through a security plan. That may be cameras, that may be a key card system, that may be through actually hiring security, and certainly the, the way they register their customers is part of that. Many properties have already complied. For example, the Holiday Inn has hired a security guard to patrol at night in the Apple Inn and Suites installed new lighting along with a camera system. And according to its general manager, Nicholas Chin, the investment is paying off. Uh, we had like um, a couple of um, auto burglary uh, in our property. We captured their face and then like their plate number and everything right away and they turned into police and they, they loved it and they feel much safer with all the changes. Guests are also enjoying major facility improvements and additional amenities on the property, as Lupe Gamboa of the Holiday Inn Express and Suites shared with us. We have pancakes, we have a really big, big buffet. So I, I talk about my breakfast because they always tell us it's great because it's something different. Usually you always get something simple. We try to make it more fun so they enjoy their breakfast in the morning. Both hotels are in the process of remodeling, including new carpeting and furniture to improve the comfort of their guests. For the Apple Inn, major improvements are being made to their suite rooms to accommodate guests staying for a longer period of time. What sorts of amenities are available in the suite? Um, oven, and then like um, the cooktop, and then like over-the-counter microwave, refrigerator. We'll put like LVT floor in the kitchen side and then bathroom side with the, uh, the new appliances in there too, so. That's what That's we're gonna be doing. The new hotel licensing program requires these additional accommodations in order to house guests longer than 29 days. For hotel guests looking for more permanent housing solutions, the city of Wheat Ridge allocated $500,000 to Family Tree to help. We worked with the city uh, to put together a program that would provide resources that would help uh, those individuals and families in those units locate, secure, and, and pay for a limited period of time new uh, safe and stable housing and then provide case management and other resources to those households to help stabilize them in those new uh, living situations. Guests looking for help finding safe and permanent housing solutions can call Family Tree directly at 303-467-2604 or visit their website, thefamilytree.org. While there's no easy fix for tackling crime and homelessness, the city of Wheat Ridge has taken a bold step. And we couldn't do it without the support of our city council, responsible hotel operators, family tree, and our residents. For more information, please visit ci.wheatridge.co.us.
We're back in the Historic Depot Museum in Broomfield. We are in the kitchen. There is another historic place in this city. It is a farmhouse, and it serves as a gathering place for the entire community. Broomfield's Gruner Farmhouse and Gardens is a heritage site located in the heart of the field open space near Midway and Maine. The farmhouse dates to 1908 and was the home of Dr. Clyde Bruner, who was the second mayor of Broomfield. He was also a veterinarian who treated his clients in the basement. Dr. Bruner was also a lover of flowers, and today his farmhouse is surrounded by 13 beautiful gardens maintained by Broomfield residents who share their love of beautiful gardens. Our volunteers commit to manage a garden for one year, and their names proudly appear on their garden. They are mentored by Broomfield Master Gardeners, who help with design and training for best garden practices. What a pleasure it is to be able to take care of this rose garden for the city and county of Broomfield. As a little girl, of course, my father was born on this property, and as a child, I not only played right where I'm standing, but also in the fields of wheat around us. The mission of the Bruner Farmhouse and Gardens is to provide a gathering place for all to enjoy. We hold seasonal concerts on our back patio, along with special activities for children. We invite you to come walk through the gardens, have a picnic, or maybe a morning coffee. Please enjoy the beauty that comes from dedicated volunteers and a very special place in Broomfield history. Very nice. We are back at the Broomfield Depot Museum at Shep's Grave. Rest in peace, Shep. And coming up next, we go to Brighton for the newest art installation, Dancing High Into the Sky. The original uh, name with this was Dancing Flames because it had the motion of flames, I thought. Okay, we did a sculpture for uh, Commerce City and we had a few extra half-inch rods that we used for this. I created it with my dad, Jerry Jaramillo, and it was uh, welded by both uh, Eric Lopez and uh, Danny Macias. We talked to the Cultural Council and uh, they decided it'd be a good idea to, uh, to preserve it. It was rusting. We had it sandblasted and then uh, powder coated. That's why we changed the name to Eternal Flame. Well, this is dedicated to all the armed forces, but yet I have uh, my grandfather and grandmother, my mom and dad and my brother here. So it's for them and all my neighbors and friends that have been in this, in this cemetery. So I dedicate this to all of them. This is the Great Western Reservoir in Broomfield, built in the 1950s to serve the city. The history of water in Colorado is complicated, but we found the Littleton City Ditch, which has a big impact. Hi, I'm City Manager Jim Becklenburg. Thanks for joining me for Around Town with Jim as we explore the places that make Littleton so special. There are few resources that are more important to life in the West than water. Today, let's have a look at a piece of Littleton's history that changed how our region got its water. And it's still working today, the City Ditch. The city ditch is older than Littleton itself. It dates to the days of the Colorado Gold Rush. When it was completed in 1867, 
It was four feet deep, six feet across, and ran by gravity from what is now Chatfield Reservoir to the modern-day City Park in Denver. It still flows today, delivering irrigation water to users along the way in the same way it was designed and built 160 years ago. It is believed to be the oldest working relic from pioneer days in the Colorado Front Range that still works as it was designed. To understand why it was built, we need to understand what the Front Range looked like when the first gold seekers arrived. It was a hot, dry, dusty place with no shade. That's right, there wasn't a shade tree around. City boosters knew that they needed water to make sure trees would root, grow, and survive. The answer was to build an irrigation ditch to bring water from the Platte River uphill to the fledgling town. The Capital Hydraulic Company also planned to sell irrigation water to the farmers who could grow the food for all those folks to eat. This map from its 1860 stock certificate shows their ambitious plan to water at least 15 square miles in what is now the Littleton and Inglewood area. There was no guarantee it would work. One of the important people in this story is Richard Little. Sound familiar? He was a college-educated civil engineer from New Hampshire who surveyed the route for the ditch. The irrigation experiment worked. Water from the main ditch fed smaller ditches on each side of every street in town, all flowing by gravity. Fifteen years later, the city had tree-lined streets. Notice the lower right corner of this 1880s street scene. On the edge of the street is a ditch with water in it, then a row of almost mature trees. Also, note the bridge over the ditch. The ditch also made it possible to create lakes in the dry prairie. In 1867, ditch diggers filled a depression in the ground which became Smith Lake and later became Washington Park. The lakes in Denver City Park created in 1880 were also filled with city ditch water. The planned irrigation farms in the Upper Valley proved so productive that Richard Little decided to build a water-powered flour mill to grind the grain. Called the Rough and Ready Mill, it turned land on his homestead into a valuable market center and economic engine. Little platted his homestead into lots in 1872 and called it Littleton. This map from 1917 shows the mill race on the west side of what is now South Santa Fe. East of the city ditch and south of Littleton Boulevard is the Fred Bemis Farm, where Ed Bemis, longtime editor of Littleton Independent, grew up. The Bemis farmhouse where he was born is now part of the 1890s exhibit at the Littleton Museum. The hardworking city ditch still delivers irrigation water to Hudson Gardens, the Littleton Cemetery, Geneva Lake north of Littleton Center, and is the prime source of drinking water for the Inglewood Municipal Water Utility. Wow, what an interesting story. Who'd have thought that that little creek that runs through our humble community is so critical to the history of the entire Denver region and Colorado. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Around Town with Jim. We'll catch you next time. Thanks to the Broomfield Depot Museum for having us. We hope you enjoy our great outdoors and history. Join us next time on Connected Colorado.
where we are right now with the systemic issues with policing. What people are really seeking is the opportunity to air their grievances, to see systemic problems fixed, and the opportunity to engage with public safety leaders directly, which the board represents. Citizen Oversight Board has three main responsibilities. The first is the oversight of the Office of the Independent Monitor, which includes hiring and firing the monitor themselves and making sure that that person is really leading a high-performance organization. The second is making policy recommendations and other recommendations regarding the public safety environment, and even in the case of specific incidents. And the third thing is addressing community complaints. Any community member could bring an experience they've had or a challenge that they've had, at concern that they see to the board. It's a nine-member board that is intended to be broadly representative of the city itself. Board members are passionate, committed, and really invested in seeing change. Chances are You've created memories of a lifetime in one of Denver's extraordinary entertainment venues. Moments with the kind of flair, promise, and lasting impact that only good times can produce. Your good time is fueling Denver's cultural and artistic landscape. Because Denver Arts and Venues invest money raised in our venues back into the community. Through free cultural events and programs and grants for local artists and arts organizations so that they can flaunt their gifts using the Mile High City as their canvas. So the next time you stick around for the encore, or settle in for the crescendo, know that the flow you get into at Yoga on the Rocks is a flow that goes both ways. For a collective mission to create access to arts and culture for everyone in Denver. To protect and invest in the legacy of our venues in public art, and to ensure that neighborhood talents have what they need to shine. As our city stakes its claim as the cultural destination for the Mountain West. Denver Arts and Venues. Good times for good. On the next all-new edition of Art Scene, we'll feature Meow Wolf, plus Denver Arts Week, Desert Rider, Denver Fashion Week, and Fashionability. explores how artists from the Southwest customize, transform vehicles, be it lowriders, skateboards, or horses, as a way of celebrating who they are and where they're from. All of the artists in this exhibition identify as Latinx or indigenous, and we are bringing together an interesting perspective on this region that has such a complicated past. And these are voices that have grown up and really rooted in this area. And we see how cars and horses and skateboards, which are not materials that we necessarily think of as art, how they can be 
objects that bring together ideas of identity and pride and culture and tradition in a single object. The work refers to the greed and the insatiable quest for power that drives American capitalism. And it's a piece that uh, I became interested in as a soft sculpture representation. For me, it's important to represent the disenfranchisement of the labor force that makes these objects. And usually they are um, immigrants, indigenous communities that are escaping violence, escaping poverty. So I'm interested in representing their labor, honoring their labor, and uh, making works that represent their hand, their, their efforts, right? For decades, I've been making work that deals with a shared culture, ethnicity, um, an identity of community power, and I've been working with um, art as a tool for social transformation um, towards social justice. So it's, it's very, very exciting for me to be included in this show, and I'm so grateful for honoring our Chicano culture in such a beautiful way. One of the largest sections here in this exhibition is dedicated to women in cars, right? We often think of cars as a male pastime, and yet here are women who have turned to the car as a way of body positivity and female empowerment. When I decided to start building this car, that's where I really kind of learned how to put together a hydraulic system. And then when I went to Detroit, it, that's where I kind of did the tear down, rebuild of the car. There are lots of themes in my work, but one of the big themes has to do with, um, I guess, is about existing as a woman in the world and the many ways you can walk through the world and um, kind of celebrating all those different kind of aspects of being a woman and also like acknowledging the different struggles that we go through. I was living in Detroit and I was um, pretty excited because I had just finished the build and I was like in a new kind of phase of my life, you know, having about to have a baby. And, um, and so I just thought it would be nice to do kind of a piece that was a celebration of that. And so I got the bikini on and got a smoke machine and got the car out into a parking lot and made it go up and down. And yeah, <laughs> thinking about making babies. <laughs> I think that piece is a really just like celebratory thing for me that I had been working really hard on the car and I kind of, I had to wait till I finished the car really <laughs> to have a kid because it was a pretty immersive process. And so, um, yeah, it was just a really celebratory moment. So this community event is called a show and shine where different um, owners that have customized lowrider vehicles, members of different car clubs here in Denver. We've got Ramplitas and Citywide, Compas and Out of Control, all bring their cars to show and shine in the sun for everyone to appreciate. I mean, these cars are rolling works of art. It's a wonderful show, I love it. So many beautiful rides here. You know, a lot of the different rides here are all from different car clubs. So, you know, everybody coming out here to represent their their colors and their, their unique hydraulics.
honestly insane how many cars are here. It's there's so many beautiful colors, so much unique design into all of them. It's so intricate, it's so thoughtful. Like you can tell that there's so much like hard work that's gone into these cars. It's honestly like it's unbelievable. I think the show had a good turnout today. I mean, there's a lot of uh, lowriders out here. Uh, this is my club here, Out of Control. So we got a few lowriders out here. We got the kids' bikes, um, you know, some RC cars, some of our kids' RC cars. And yeah, I think it's a good turnout, and they should keep doing it every year. Here's what's coming into view on Elevating Denver. What is it that Latinos are going to contribute to Colorado? And so I really want people to be thinking about that, how we are the past, because we were the ones that settled this, this state first. But what is it we're going to do in the future? And how can everybody be part of that? Because as a culture and not a race, we have a bienvenido inclusive spirit, and we want people to join with us. We are a mixed community, and we offer people the opportunity to really tap into that new diversity and inclusion that their grandchildren and children are going to be part of, and that's happening right now. Hi, I'm Juana Bordas, and uh, I've lived in Denver many, many years. Um, and I am currently the author of The Power of Latino Leadership Ahora, which means now. And uh, I have uh, dedicated my professional and personal career uh, to working with women and the Latino community and to advancing a more humane and people-centered society. You know, 47% of Latinos are still working class. They still make under the minimum wage. And so because 40% of the Latino community are immigrants, it, it, there's that, this whole feeling that if we can get educated, if we can help our children become professionals, then we'll be able to lift up the whole community. And so uh, education was really important to my parents. I'm not sure they knew I was going to keep going and become Dr. Bordas because they probably didn't even imagine that, right? But it's like once you step on that path and once you begin to educate yourself, the doors are open for you and you're able to do more and more and, and learn more and more. But I also think the purpose of life is growth, learning and advancement, that human beings really thrive when they're, um, when they're uh, developing themselves and expanding themselves and tapping into their own power and efficacy. I became a community activist when I went to the University of Florida. It's the 60s. I never meet another Latina. I never meet another Latino. The whole university is very white and I'm trying to maneuver and learn how to get through that. And I'm sitting at my dorm and I see my, my uh, political science professor with a group of people and they were walking and marching towards the administration building. So I ran up and I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, we're marching to integrate the University of Florida. And I think one of the most um, blessed parts of my life is that I've been able to see these changes in America from going to a university that was segregated, marching to uh, integrate the University of Florida, and then seeing two African-Americans come on the campus my senior year. And so I've been able to see this and be part of this change in America. And now the challenge is, is how do we create an equitable society? The way I got into leadership, I think, is interesting. So I'm sitting at Mikasa Women's Center, or Mikasa Center now, 
It's the largest Hispanic serving organization in the state. It was built over 40 years, so I was very fortunate to be here at the very beginning. I could be here for 10 years, women would still be looking for jobs. They'd still need a GED, they'd still need to improve their English. The high school kids that come here will still need to be helped to finish high school. And I was thinking to myself, what's going to change that? And I thought, it's leadership. Because when you become a leader, you can deal with the issues that create inequity. When you become a leader, you can work in, in civic change. You can elect people to office that care more about people than, them, than their own advancement. That's what leadership is about. Whether you're in an organization or you're in school or you're in a business, you need to take care of people so that they can then do their best work. And so when I went to develop curriculums and work with people that were Latinos around leadership, there was nothing that said, here's how Latinos lead. Here's how Latinos made it through 500 years of being called minorities, being called marginalized, working in the hard jobs, being discriminated against, being the essential workers, not getting the educational opportunities they needed to advance. And so that's how I got into writing, looking at the convergence of leadership between Latinos, African Americans, and American Indians. How did we get here is the question. Under such dire circumstances, under having to get people motivated to work for social change and, and to be civically engaged when they were working class, when they didn't have resources, when they knew they would never see the kind of society they wanted in their own lifetimes, how did our leaders inspire people to do that decade after decade, century after century? We had to have some good leadership. Me as an elder in my community, I'm able to share my perspective, my experience, and my knowledge with younger people so they understand that it's a step-by-step. -step. We call it paso a paso, paso a paso, step-by-step, -step, we'll get there. But you have to work together and you have to have that vision of what's coming in the future so that you can really work towards that. Stay elevated by subscribing to the city's YouTube page and stay tuned to our social media channels for more content. Don't miss our new episodes of Elevating Denver, premiering each month. Thanks for watching, Denver. Since the early 20th century, around World War I, the United States agricultural economy started to depend on Mexican labor in order to fill in for the soldiers fighting overseas. Migrant farm workers in the 20th century have had to face injustices ever since they entered the country. And in 1951, the United States government engaged in an exchange with the Mexican government called the Bracero Program, in which Mexican agricultural workers would be sent to American growers, especially in California. The law stated that no Bracero worker could be replaced with a domestic worker. With poor regulation of this law, growers began to bring in more and more migrant workers because they were not citizens and therefore could be economically and physically discriminated against. The working conditions for these migrant workers were atrocious. The growers easily dismissed the laws governing the working standards of the migrants. Workers received wages as low as 90 cents per hour while picking grapes. None of the ranches had toilets, and the housing was segregated. 
Also, workers had to pay $2 extra per day for the unheated metal shacks with no indoor plumbing or cooking facilities. Child labor was very common, and oftentimes migrant workers died doing preventable accidents. These conditions are summed up with the average life expectancy of a farm worker, 49. Over the next few years, farm workers would be united together under the United Farm Workers Association, which was spearheaded by a handful of brave individuals seeking to nonviolently gain strides in attaining equality for all farm workers. The movement would run into countless obstacles, yet the perseverance of the many individuals and their cause would prevail them towards building the kingdom of God throughout farms in the United States. As the oppression and injustice continued to plague the farm worker community throughout California, young and ambitious social justice leaders, namely Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, began to make their mark. The movement fighting for the rights of the farm workers actually began as two separate ones. The Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, founded by Larry Itliong, and the National Farm Workers Association, founded by Chavez and Huerta. The NFWA, which was co-founded by Dolores Huerta as well, was a pivotal organization leading to the formation of the UFW. Cesar would travel to various farms in the central valleys of California and speak to the families of the struggling farm workers, ultimately building a strong community that would lead to a robust union. They combined grassroots and legislative techniques even grabbing the attention of Senator Robert Kennedy, who was influential in drawing attention to the UFW on a national stage. Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta held their nonviolent practices and philosophy to be the central element of the various strikes and boycotts that the UFW would carry out beginning in the early 1960s. Even while they were brutally attacked with pesticides, physical violence, and verbal abuse during their strikes and boycotts, Chavez and Huerta stuck to the mold of Jesus the Peacemaker, knowing that nonviolence was far more powerful than its counterpart. The two specific UFW movements that would forever change the world of farm workers, growers, and the nation are the Delano Grape Strike and the pilgrimage from Delano to the state's capital, Sacramento. On September 16, 1965, Cesar Chavez and the NFWA joined the Filipino-American Grape Worker Group, who were members of the AWOC, by striking in order to protest the inhumane working conditions and low wages plaguing the community of migrant workers. Significantly, this day was Mexican Independence Day, symbolizing the beginning of a pursuit of justice for all workers. The decision of Chavez to answer the call and join the AWOC granted his movement more strength than ever before. The unification of different races disabled the growers' tactic of turning workers of different races against each other in order to disrupt protesting. Now that both groups had decided to join together in solidarity and go on strike, they united together under one name, the United Farm Workers. The farm workers would not return to work until they got what they rightfully deserved, a higher pay and more humane working conditions. Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta adopted the word huelga, meaning strike, and the phrase si se puede, meaning yes we can, to unify all strikers, workers, and supporters under a common language and motive. These empowering words were nonviolent actions themselves. Instead of promoting violence, they spread hope. In March of 1966, Chavez and volunteer strikers from the UFW embarked on a 340-mile pilgrimage to Sacramento in an effort to bring national attention to the plight of migrant farm workers. Cesar was followed by thousands of protesters on his way to the capital. Ultimately, this nonviolent action brought the issue to the national stage and convinced Shenley Industries, a company discriminating against the farm workers, to sign a contract with the UFW.
In the summer of the same year, the UFW began boycotting every California table grape growing company. This successful boycott, much to the credit of Dolores Huerta, led to the growers finally having to sign union contracts with the UFW in July of 1970. But the fight never stopped there. The boycotts and strikes occurred regularly until the growers agreed to a state law in 1975, granting California farm workers the right to organize, bargain, and vote in state-supervised elections. While the process of nonviolence took several years to enact change, the actions of Chavez, Huerta, and the UFW brought about positive change in the law that would halt the inhumane treatment of migrant farm workers in California. Following in the steps of Jesus, Chavez and Huerta built a grassroots support that would pave the way for nonviolent legislative reform. They started by building a community of farm workers and eventually worked their way up to the judicial system. Chavez's fast in 1968, prompted by some farm workers resorting to violence, connected the suffering of Jesus to that of Chavez. Chavez knew that violence was not the answer, and he and the UFW would have to face the hardships along the way. Chavez broke his fast with the Eucharist at Mass, which served as a nonviolent action and symbolized the creation of a vanguard, a unification of a community working towards justice. Chavez crafted his beloved community under the nonviolent teachings of Jesus and replicated actions from Gandhi and MLK to fight for justice without causing violence. The United Farm Workers of America continue to do positive work today by holding boycotts and strikes at California vineyards that economically oppress their workers. Chavez, Huerta, and all those involved in the UFW have made major strides in their pursuit of justice. Yet the nonviolent path is a long one and there is still work to do around the country. Si se puede! Desde Delano voy Hasta Sacramento Hasta Sacramento Mis derechos a pelear Que yo he de decir Que estoy muy cansado Que el camino es largo Y no se ve el fin My name is Adriana Abarca This collection here is all Mexican photography And I was born and raised here in North Denver, Northwest Denver My father first came to the United States in 1955 he went to Chicago to work in the steel mills, and then he wanted to head out to the West Coast in search of opportunity. And that's when his car broke down on the way to California here in Denver. And fortunately, he met my mother soon after that. And it was love at first sight, and they started a family here. So I have an older brother, Marco Antonio, and a younger brother, Eric. My parents first started La Fonda restaurant with my uncle Ramon and their partner Enrique Garcia. From there, they opened the first tortilla factory here in Denver called El Sol. Then from there, my father opened up Ready Foods and that was 1971. So we're gonna be celebrating our 50th anniversary next year. My father passed away eight years ago and our mother passed away maybe 14 years ago. Since then, it's been Marco Antonio and I running Ready Foods. My father, he thought it was very important that his children had access to not only Mexican art, but art in general. He would always take the family whenever we would travel to museums specifically or uh, to meet artists in their studios. 
In the late 1970s, my father came to know a lot of the Denver Chicano painters and sculptors, and he befriended them, hang out in their studios all day with them, and really inspire them and encourage them. And when he had a few bucks in his pocket, he was happy to buy some of their work as it became available. And that artwork oftentimes was hung here at Ready Foods in the offices. And then with time, he had purchased so many paintings that we then had a lot of paintings around the house. So welcome to Echo in Colorado. Echo in Colorado is a concept that I had for the Valentine Gallery, which is on the first floor of History Colorado. I wanted to highlight the paintings and sculptures and textiles and jewelry and also the written word that are part of the Abarca family collection, which we have been collecting since the 70s. So we have works that are created by the older generation of artists, many of them now in their 70s. And then we have pieces that are created by the newer generation, the new up and coming uh, artists who are now primarily in their 30s. There was a Chicana vice principal at North High School, Marta Urioste, who was big into education and she pushed me. She said, you need to go to college. And thank God I went to college because college is where I was able to take Chicano and Latino Americano studies. That's where I was able to learn about my cultural identity, about my people's history. And that totally changed the the game for me, uh, 100%. I met Adriana through a mutual friend uh, in 2014 while I was working on my master's at CU Boulder in education policy. And this mutual friend of ours, uh, Raydina Acevedo, told me that she had a friend that had this vision of supporting the Latino arts. Uh, so she introduced us and we had lunch in Golden and she told me about this plan that she had so I was heavily influenced by the work that was being done in California, and I wanted something similar to that here in Denver and in Colorado, in the Rocky Mountain region. So I began this project, the Latino Cultural Arts Center. We're working to develop a cultural campus in the Sun Valley that will have three locations. Currently, we're working to remodel two warehouses that are about 14,000 square feet where we're going to be starting an integrated community art center called Las Bodegas that incorporates the visual arts and the performing arts in a way that's historically grounded uh, and gives the community, people of all ages, the opportunity to come to learn together uh, about their history, their culture, and their art. I think a lot of artists endure a lot of hardship and might not find success for many, many years. And you have to be incredibly patient and you have to believe that you're, what you create is as valuable as what anyone else on this planet creates. Adriana is, is a challenger. She doesn't let one person stay, stay stagnant in, in the belief of what they could be or what they want to be. She encourages them to, to be that person. She encourages individually, she encourages the community, she encourages artists. I think she's the biggest encourager that I've ever encountered, but she's also a dreamer. And those people are rare to come by, they're, they're hard to come by. Don't get stuck in a rut and just know that your work is as valuable as anyone else's work. Your creation is as valuable. Some people have more natural talent, but a lot of it comes down to hard work.
Next. Next. We're in G. Trumpets are different. Okay, here we go. One, two. One, two, ready, and. My father was a musician broker. So he brought the first mariachi groups from Mexico, like to play at Casa Bonita. And then from there, they played at different venues and things like that. We did not go over Guadalajara today, so I want to go ahead and go over that to start with. Okay? Okay. Not too bad. Why mariachi? Because I thought that there, there was a need to have it. I felt like I knew mariachi music. I loved mariachi music. It was something that I really loved that I thought that the kids should also get that opportunity to explore that part of their culture. My ancestors, they were like musicians in Mexico. My cousins, they play mariachi, my sister, and like it inspired me. I think mariachi music relates to Hispanic heritage because it's part of their culture. It's part of who they are. It's part of what is inside of them. You don't have to be of Hispanic culture to appreciate and love mariachi music. I've been playing the violin for five years. I was hesitant at first to join mariachi because my dad plays music and I've seen how much, like, what, it's fun, but it, there's also... Una piedra en el camino. Even the sad songs are like, you get into it, especially if the crowd is like, really exciting, doing gritos. People do gritos when they are excited about a song and they want to share that. So they do something like this. With our mariachi program, we start with the students that are in third grade. And then from there, if they want to continue with the program, then they do so. It's not easy to go ahead and learn to play an instrument, to learn to play an instrument and have to sing as well. And this is an after-school program, and it's not a cheap program. When you're looking at the mariachi outfits, instruments, instructors and that, everything starts to cost money. If there's a way that you could help the program, that's awesome.
Denver, the decision is yours this November. Make an informed decision by joining us for live forums with a candidate vying for seats on the Denver Public Schools Board of Directors and hear from both sides of Proposition HH. Catch them on denver8.tv, denverdecides.org, Facebook, or YouTube. Denver Decides, where Denver voters turn to get informed. Quig Newton and the North Side for me was community. Um, growing up, my grandma's house, it was yard sales every other weekend. You know, I used to tell my wife, I tell my wife the, the ice cream, the paleta man would be ringing his bell through the neighborhood. You know, they would come through with shopping carts and honk their horns and sell us elotes and, uh, it was just that sense of community. Like I said, your neighbor would be on the same baseball team or the same basketball team as you. You know, your other friend down the street, she would be good at math and would be able to help you with your math homework before Monday. It was just that whole sense of community. We lived on Wolf Street and on 13th and Wolf. So that was part of North High School. And they, there was a special bus, it was a 64 bus, that picked us up at a specific time before school started. And all of us, we're all Jewish, and we're getting on this bus that's taking us to North. North is the rock of the neighborhood. It is the high school that everybody feeds into. Uh, in my day, we had three major middle schools that fed into it, we called them junior highs. And North is where we solidified the community. It will always be that to me. I am Brandy Archuleta, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. This is Jim Vigil, close family friend, and the person that ran the rec center for a very, very long time. And he's raised generations and generations of youth in the neighborhood, and it really was his life's mission to make it a cultural hub for all of the people in his community. What was attractive about this area has always been the Latino nature of the thing. Uh, you know, West 32nd Avenue was uh, what Welton Street was to Five Points in terms of the local businesses that cater to Latinos, the panaderias, the video stores, the estelistas, uh, the Holiday Theater. The Holiday Theater was a theater I used to go to back in the day when I was nine and ten years old we watched double features on Saturday morning. 
We are at 2616 West 32nd Avenue at Taqueria Pazcuaro, a restaurant that opened on West 32nd Avenue in 1978. The first taqueria in Denver. Back in the day, I mean, it was, it was a reasonable place to live as far as, you know, rent, mortgage. You know, the, the housing was affordable and uh, they just love the community. You know, the, it, was, it was a pretty tight community back in the day. It's changed a lot since then. Family, everything revolved around family. And family ties and associationship with, with family, relatives, cousins, friends. So you asked about good, bad, the ugly. It was all pretty good because we all knew each other and we were all in the same boat, so to speak. This block, you know, growing up here was very rich, uh, living with, with the Italian community. And growing up at a time when Little Italy was alive and thriving, it was wonderful. The best food, the best wines, the best bread, you know, the best drama with the small domes. The Italian lady from down the block walk by and just check out the garden and say hello and tell me what was happening with each and every neighbor. <laughs> she would make the rounds and, and then she, she would like the, the city block town crier, you know, she told everybody everything. And so if you didn't want something shared, you better not tell Tina because <laughs> uh, uh, her real name was Santina, huh? Uh, so you better not tell Tina because she'll go spread it all around the block. And it was being able to walk down to West 32nd Avenue and uh, you know pick up not only the panaderia but maybe go to a Mexican movie, uh, maybe listen to some really uh, top shelf talent from Mexico uh, sing, and uh, then go to a protest or to hear Cesar Chavez over at Guadalupe Church. We would be, hey, what are you gonna do today? You know what I'm saying? Oh, you're gonna go swimming. You can go play basketball. Where are you gonna be? Where are you gonna be at? Who's who's with you? You know, okay, let me jump on my bike. I'll be right there. It was that sense of community. This is a photo of the four women who helped to start KUVO Radio. We initially started from my home and eventually uh, moved to different studio spaces. We have um, myself, Veronica Gallegos in the back row, and Dolores Atencio in the front row, and Mercedes Hernandez, my sister, who was the program director in the front row. KUVO still exists. It's at 89.3 FM, and I hope you'll listen to it. You know, the north side uh, was a very diverse community. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of Latinos uh, living in the area, Chicanos and Central Americans. Uh, but there was also Italians mm -hmm. and, uh, and a sizable Eastern European community too. But the North Side drew us in because of that diversity, because of that uh, feel of a community. It was a mix of Italian and Latino. Pretty much everybody was a working class community. It wasn't just Chicanos. It wasn't just Blacks. It wasn't just Asians. It, we had everybody. It felt like a great mix of people because it wasn't just the Jewish kids, and there were a lot of us, but it was the Italians. We, at that time, there weren't as many Hispanic. Um, there were several Japanese kids, 
and then there were like wealthy whites and poorer whites and it was a really nice mix of of personalities and ethnicities religions um, so you made friends with all these people well you know back in those days there was a lot of a lot of uh, little gangsters around you know <laughs> Well, actually, my mother was the housekeeper for the small dome, so I got to be, I got to be pretty much an Italian, an Italian Mexican Chicano. The small domes owned uh, Gitanos. Yeah, they did a lot of booking and things like that. Out of there. We are at 38th and Newton Street at Carl's. Carl's is owned now by John Ludwig, who bought the business from Carl Di Giacomo back in the 80s, I believe. Great pizza, great place, great gathering place in North Denver. Well, let's see, Carl would pull up in his uh, Cadillac Coupe de Ville across the street. He'd come in. We had uh, Joe Briola. He used to like to sit right here. He used to play cards in the back room. He was a collector for the small domes. Oh yeah, you know, we'd have the cops in the front room and the, and the, and the crooks in the back room. <laughs> My family knew all of those people and I knew them as well and it would, if you knew them as members of the community that was just their job and you didn't associate with what they did mm -hmm. and that, that was totally separate. Their wives half the time didn't know what they were doing. It was just the family business. Mm -hmm. So no there really wasn't to push back. It was just you don't get involved with those underworld kinds of things, that's, it's not legal. That was the, uh, the prevailing attitude. I was a Valkyrie, which was the pep club, and we all wore uh, purple skirts with um, uh, gold button-down shirts, cr uh, just shirts, and we had gold jacket with, uh, or a purple jacket with gold piping on it, and we wore uh, loafers with gold socks and so on. And we went to all the games. We went to the football games, we went to the basketball games, and often um, after, or be usually before a game, we would eat at the old Mexican cafe. And it was the best Mexican food. It was wonderful Mexican food. And that was, you know, we went with our girlfriends who grew up on the north side. That was the sense of community that we had. You know what I mean? It didn't matter your skin color, didn't matter where your heritage was from. What mattered was that you were here in the north side with us. My name is John Marsico. This is a photograph of my eighth grade graduation from St. Patrick's grade school. The school is located on 34th and Pecos. These were eighth grade students. Uh, as you can see by the photograph, it's a diversity of people. And it, it shows that it was a very good, interesting, equal community. Not too far from here are three Catholic churches within a few blocks of each other. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to point that out that there's Mount Carmel, St. Patrick's, and Our Lady of Guadalupe. So you can tell, I mean, within a small area, the three Catholic churches catered to different aspects of the community as, as it existed at that time. So it was very much a, a mix. We are at the corner of 33rd and Pecos at St. Patrick's Church, the old mission church. 
This congregation was founded in 1907. This church was built in 1907 and served an Irish American population. There were a lot of celebrations, uh, different kinds of holidays, you know, from the Italian uh, festivities uh, to uh, what the Latinos were doing and then everything in between. Well, St. Rocco's Feast uh, was a large uh, procession uh, that would carry the statue of St. Rocco, who was the patron saint of Potenza. Uh, they would bid on that statue in the front of this church for the honor of carrying this statue through the streets. At the end of that bidding process, that statue was in a long procession around this street, then benediction afterwards, and then followed by the feast. At, uh, they usually used uh, the parking lot at uh, Potenza Lodge on 38th and uh, Shosho. Now we are at the corner of 36th and Navajo at Our Lady of Mount Carmel. This church served and still serves the Italian community. Again, there is a mass done here in Italian still, and that is the 10 o'clock mass every Sunday. That's why we are parishioners of this church. There hasn't been a Sunday in years that have gone by where I haven't been in at mass with one or two classmates, a first cousin or two first cousins, whatever. So it's, it's, it brings me back here weekly. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for anybody else, but I do know people uh, who are very active in the men's club here because they, that allows them to maintain their November traditions. We are at the corner of 36th and Kellerman at Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is a beautiful church. And this church was built in 1947. This congregation serves the Hispanic American population and Hispanos, and it has masses in both English and Spanish. This is three Guadalupes at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, and I wanted to um, show this photograph because uh, the mural that was painted by Carlota Espinosa is, um, it was, so much part of our community in the north side um, but it got covered over by a wall and so um, nobody can really see it there is a group of women guadalupians who go behind the wall and they pray the rosary and hopefully someday um, we will be able to see that mural again maybe the wall will be torn down um, but at least the painting itself still exists. Guadalupe Church was to me the central place to go, whether Cesar Chavez came to visit and he, and he uh, spoke at Guadalupe Church Hall, or whether Father Lara was, uh, you know, encouraging people to act in a, as, with justice for everybody. My name is Tim Hernandez, and this is my photo from uh, May 13th, 2022, where hundreds of students walked out of North High School in protest of having more teachers of color, more Chicano teachers, ethnic studies classes, and Chicano studies classes. Um, and it connects to our neighborhood historically because 50 years ago, high school students that looked just like us 
walked out just like us and took over streets just like us. We were very active in community projects and the north side was a, was a real hotbed of uh, political activity back then. Primarily, I, I talk about the Chicano movement, uh, the Chicano Civil Rights Movement that was going on across the Southwest. But uh, in Denver, you know, the Crusade for Justice and the Mexican-American students on campus uh, were really very active in agitating for uh, equality, voting rights, education, better jobs, healthcare, all the basic things that we still hear about today. And, and, and here in the north side, there were very active community groups and a lot of activity going on in terms of protest marches, uh, uh, dissent, uh, civil disobedience, uh, something uh, like the naming the park uh, from Columbus Park to La Raza Park. You know, that, that was recently successfully concluded, but that particular struggle started 50 years ago. We're at La Raza Park at 38th and Osage Street. And this park has a lot of historical meaning. This park was first dedicated by the Italian-American community and given to the city. It was known then as Columbus Park. But as the world changes and demographics change, this park became a true symbol of the Chicano movement. That's where we hope. You know, that's where we grew up. That was our PlayStation. That's where we got engaged. That's where we did a whole lot of good and bad things. And I started to say, you know, we need to rename this park. Look what they did at Lincoln Park. You know, so we worked with city council, Parks and Rec, tried to work with them. They laughed at us. They didn't take us serious. We didn't have any political power. And then after six months, you know, in the early spring, we said, we're not getting anywhere. So we made a plan. We made a plan that, that on June, June the 20th, 1970, we got together demands for employment, for the renaming of the park, maintenance of the park, police issues. So I said, you know, a peaceful way to do this would be a splashing. My plan was to go in, meet, march at the pool, one o'clock, they open the doors, we're gonna bum rush it, and we're gonna occupy the pool. We're not gonna come out until our demands or discuss three and a half hours later, the cops came, the frogmen came, you know, and they're, they're trying to get us out of the pool. We were able to negotiate after three and a half hours and we vacate the pool. We had set a meeting at nine o'clock in the morning at Parks and Rec. And so we marched, you know, over a hundred of us community people but it was leadership from the neighborhood. And that's one thing I'm really proud of is that these youth stood up for something that they learned to believe in, even if they were the only ones standing. It can be very uh, traumatic for somebody who's grown up in this neighborhood or lived in the neighborhood for decades like we have. When you see that the history of the neighborhood is being forgotten, uh, that diverse culture that we talked about before, the activities that were going on, the community nature of, of the neighborhood, you know, all of that is slipping away. Uh, you know, change is inevitable no matter where you live, and things are going to change in the neighborhood. 
but it's really been drastic here in, in this part of the city. Instead of neighborhood, we called our neighborhood barrios. It's the same thing. Sometimes the term barrio got a negative connotation, but it really meant a place where families lived, children grew, and people prospered. I grew up in a subdivision, which is not as neighborhood rich as a true blocked type of community like North Denver is. And so um, I love walking around the neighborhood and waving at the neighbors and knowing who your neighbors are and um, why I like North Denver um, and why I like this part of the neighborhood. You can see these, these intersections, these blocks, these neighborhoods where the, the barbershops, the bars, the butcher shops used to be, and they've all been converted to either microbrews or uh, restaurants. But if, if you need to get a haircut, if you need a pound of nails, you have to leave your neighbor. I am part of this new, new guard of people moving to Denver for whatever reason right but um i care about the neighborhood i care about the the north star newspaper and i read that on my front porch you know every month when it comes out and so um i think i recognize the change and i want to be a part of preserving the history of it um whether that's naming more parks after local heroes of the of the neighborhood or putting more plaques up on corners of, of, of street, I think we can do more to help preserve the neighborhood because things are going to change. It's inevitable. Okay, I agree. Change, change is a part of nature, but we can be the, that change agent that helps guide that change. That's one of the things that's missing because throughout the history of North Denver, uh, Chicanos have been left out of that change. So you mentioned earlier you saw some folks with picket signs at La Raza Park. That's, that's been an active part of the change. That's been part of the community that says we want our voices heard. How do you think um, the older communities or the Chicano community and the newer community can help bridge those efforts um, here in North Denver. It's twofold. It's incumbent upon the old residents to inform the new residents about the history. Likewise, it's incumbent upon the new residents to have the thirst to understand and seek out the knowledge of that history. You passing on this to me hits me in a different way, you know? And so I can pass this on and to the people after me, but I guess that's what, how I would end it. Well, let's keep open minds, huh? Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree.
Patrice entered into our breast imaging center with a screening mammogram. We identified a very subtle breast cancer. Because she came in for her routine screening mammogram, we were able to catch it very early. She's expected to make a full recovery. With Denver Health, they help you every step of the way. They give you the flexibility of when. They even have those mobile trucks that go around. How easy can it be? It's not painful like people think. I tell everybody who's got ears about a mammogram. And if they haven't had one, go get one. My name is Patrice Branch, and I've been a patient with Denver Health for the past 25 years. I've been getting mammograms uh, most of my adult life. I go every year. You have to be consistent with it. With Denver Health, they help you every step of the way. You call them and you tell them, I want to make a mammogram appointment. And they give you the flexibility of when, what time. They even have those mobile trucks that go around, you know. How easy can it be? It only takes maybe 10 minutes. And that's walking in the door and walking out. It's not painful like people think. It's just, you get a little squeeze. When I had my mammogram, the nurse was telling me, we need to reschedule you because we found something. And she said, we want to do an ultrasound and a biopsy. And when I heard biopsy, I thought, oh God, I got cancer. So Patrice um, entered into our breast imaging center with a screening mammogram. And it was at that appointment where we identified a very subtle breast cancer that was less than one centimeter. We actually were able to perform that biopsy on the same day as her diagnostic examinations. Because she came in for her routine screening mammogram, we were able to catch the, her cancer very early and she was able to undergo a lumpectomy. She's expected to make a full recovery um, and continue to live her life and do all of the, the things that she was doing before the surgery. When I was talking to Dr. Miles, the one thing he said that made all the sense in the world to me, he said, People who don't get mammograms every year, he says what they'll do is they'll come in after how many years of not having mammograms and they'll get a mammogram and be at stage four, which means you're gonna lose a breast and if not one, both. Who wants that? I don't. Cancer nothing to play with. Like I've lost almost my whole family to cancer. So now it's just me and my sister living here her and I are very close, and it makes it good because she's my rock. This experience has been so calming. Dr. Miles and his team, professional, personal, caring, considerate, so that, that helped a lot. She's better prepared for this one than she ever has been for all the other surgeries that she's had. When I interact with women as they come through our through breast imaging, I really want to get to know them. When I ask them, you know, how are you doing? I really am interested in that response. I don't like to refer to our patients in a traditional sense. I really like to refer to them as partners um, or, or peers because I feel like we have the same goal. Um, we really are working together to make sure that we have the best outcome uh, for their particular situations and ensuring that they receive the best care possible for them.